Is that better? Is that better? No? How about now? How about now? Better? Better? No, I have to pick my head up? I pick my head up? Okay. Okay. So the packet is continuing. So after the end of uh, Judy's chart, which is Judy's page six, you'll see the page number start over again. You'll see a picture of two sets of hands. So um, what we're going to get to eventually to talk about is is the shofar as a type of wordless tefillah and how that works. And so I thought that we would practice some wordless tefillah before we dive into the Mishorot. But I will start with the following disclaimer. My voice can't carry the room. I'm going to ask some of my students to help to lead us, but also ask each of you, if you know the tune, uh, to, please, to please join in together. <clears throat> Time he gets up, gotta put on his tone. 
And then my quarter goes to Davin. And he picks up whatever book he can find. Sidur, Chumash, whatever book is lying around, smaller the better. And it goes like this. And then he says the Shema or whatever he's learned. That's very beautiful. It's very sweet. But for him, davening means going like this. Now, if you're, that's what Jewish davening to him looks like. As Peter pointed out, if you go, if you switch your hands from open to closed, you switch religions. But what just happened when you went like this? You closed the sidur. You put the sidur away. And this kind of prayer is very different than this kind of prayer. So my claim, which will take us a little while to develop, is that the shofar is this kind of prayer. It's a prayer where your hands are closed, where you're not reading out of a book, there's no script, there's no words, but it's something bigger than the words of the Siddur or the words of the Maqsur. One of the great challenges of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur in particular, but of Jewish prayer in general, is that there are a lot of words. We're walking to shul. I had this very vivid memory um, being a young boy in the synagogue and very excited towards the end of Ni'ilah as you could count down the last couple of pages. And this notion that we would start on Yom Kippur at the Beard Mountain, page number one, and work through every single page of the Maqsur, this was like a big accomplishment. So I would sit in shul with my father in Ni'ilah. It was very beautiful. My parents used to make these uh, lemons with cloves inside. And I have this very vivid memory of the smell. And just and I remember also sucking the lemon juice, which I wasn't supposed to, before my bar mitzvah. And counting the pages down. The pages of my dad's mafsar would get sort of stained with lemon juice. Especially those last couple of Ni'ila pages. Because we were going to say and read every page of the mafsar. Even if we were bored to tears, we were going to read every page of the Mahsur. Now, fast forward a few years, I happen to really love the Mahsur. I really love the Siddur. I think it's great material. But if you walk into shul and you haven't looked at the Rosh Hashanah Mahsur since last year, it's really difficult. And it's really complicated. The Hebrew is hard, and sometimes even the English is hard. So it requires preparation. One of the things that's different in the Mahsur, obviously, is the Shofar. The Shofar requires a different kind of preparation, and that's the kind of preparation that I want to try to work on for the next uh, for the next little bit. I might try to end a few minutes earlier so that Rabbi Silver can start a few minutes earlier because he may need to sneak out closer to 5 than 5 to 15. So if you look on the packet on my page number 2, where it says the blessing of the broken Shofar, and you have an A and a B, which outlines two different the types of a brachot on the shofar. The first source is actually just an excerpt from the machzor. In the shofarot section of the Amidah, we recite this tefillah at the very end. Ki kol shofar uma'azin truah. For you hear the voice of the shofar and listen to the truah. Ve'in domelacha baruchat Hashem shomea kol truat amu Yisrael barachamim. God who hears the voice of the Trua of his people, Israel, in compassion. In this bracha, or in this tefillah, who's listening to the shofar? God. God. So we're blasting the shofar here, and God is listening wherever God is at that moment in time. That's the tefillah of the Amidah. And in fact, if you look at the Mishnah, 
if you look at the Gemara, if you look at the Midrash, there is no bracha for the shofar. The, the bracha of the shofar is Musaf. And this may be a specific bracha of the part of Musaf linked to the shofar. This is what the rabbis thought was Birkat HaShofar. But at some point, which we'll have to figure out when and why, we developed another bracha, which is, as you have on the page in front of you, Lishmoa Kol Shofar. So who's hearing in this one? We're being commanded, so we are. Human beings are listening or hearing the sounds of the shofar. So already the tefillah of Musa is very different from what we would call the Birkat HaMitzvah. The bracha at the moment when we blow the shofar in shul, after shacharit, before Musaf begins, which is sort of the first moment in time, which is also when we recite the Shehechianu, that bracha is fundamentally different than the bracha of Musaf, both in terms of direction, who's hearing, who's listening. And also we'll see this bracha is about hearing, but there's another version of this bracha that's maybe about blasting. Another version of this bracha was litkoa bashofar, which will move us in another direction as we go forward. So what we're going to look at is sort of two or three different parts. First, we're going to look at how the specific sounds of tkiyah, shvarim, truah, tkiyah developed. Then we're going to look at this question of what's the actual bracha, lishmoa or litkoa, to blast or to hear. And then we're going to conclude with a little bit of a conversation about the nature of wordless tefillah. So the challenge is we stand in shul on Rosh Hashanah. We hear the shofar blasted a lot of times. How many times is the shofar sounded in shul? 100 times. To figure out where that comes from, it's very strange. And the Mishnah says, if you go to page number three, Seder Tkiot, Shalosh, Shel Shalosh, Shalosh. So it's so obvious what the Mishnah wants from us, right? We need this blow the shofar, Shalosh, Shel Shalosh, Shalosh. Very even difficult to even try to translate that with specificity. Three by three by three, or three sets of three each. But we don't know exactly what that means. And what the Gemara is now going to undertake is to try to figure out what are these three sets of three each. According to the bottom line, according to the minimum, all one has to hear is three broken sounds surrounded by solid sounds on either side. The broken sound, we have three names for that broken sound that's in the middle. Sometimes we call it a shvarim, which is three small sounds. Sometimes we call it a tkiyah, which is nine or more fast sounds. Or we call it a shvarim trua. Okay, so we have three different ways of referring to that middle voice, that middle call. But that middle voice is actually just a trua. The problem is when the Torah says, yom trua you should have a day of trua. We don't know what a trua sounds like or sounds like. It's very difficult to pinpoint what that sound is supposed to be. So the Gemara will later take for granted that you have a tkiyah followed by a broken sound, shvarim, or truah, or shvarim truah, followed by a tkiyah. So what three sets of three each actually means is three sets of truah surrounded by tkiyot three times. So all you have to hear is nine sounds. But those nine sounds, if you don't know what the middle sound is supposed to be, is going to quickly morph into 30 or 27, depending how we do our accounting. So let's see how that happens. It's a little bit of fancy rabbinic footwork. So if you look at the Gemara and commenting, skipping the first paragraph, but the second paragraph of source uh, of source number one, where it says the length of the truah is equal to the length of three yivavot. 
So the Gemara is bothered by a question, not of the number of sounds, but really of the relative length of the sounds, kia relative to shvarim or truah. So here we're told that the truah is equal to three yivavot. What's a yivava? Crying. So it's the word for. It's an Aramaic word for a cry. So if you say that a truah is equal to three yivavot, three cries, that would, in our language, that would be the shvarim. Okay, but then the Talmud is bothered because we have a brighter. Uh, that's what our Mishnah says. But we have a brighter which says that shiur truah kishlosha shvarim, that the length of a truah is equal to three shvarim. Three shvarim is three times three. Is nine sounds is what we would call the truah or the staccato, the quick nine sounds. So we have a problem. Is the central broken sound a shvarim, three slower sounds, or is it a truah? nine quicker sounds. So that's what the Gemara is trying to figure out. What does a trua actually sound like? Amar So here, we definitely have a debate. Up above, maybe we didn't, now we do. Dichtiv, as the Pasuk says, Yom That you should have a day of trua and we translate into Aramaic, Unklus translate that word as Yom Yivava Yehei Lachon. You should have a day of Yivava, of crying. And what is how do we know that the word Yivava means crying? Uktiv ime de Sisra, the mother of Sisra. We'll talk about Sisra in a moment. Abaad hachalon nishkafa. She was waiting for her son to come back from war, and she's peeking from behind the window. Vatiyavev em Sisra. And she was crying. Who is Sisra? Good guy or bad guy? Bad guy. Bad guy. Enemy of the Jewish people going to war being killed. And his mother is waiting to him come to come back. And he's not coming back because he's been killed. Uh, unfortunately, for his mother's sake. Sisra is an arch enemy. But nonetheless, his mother's tears matter to us. Extremely important concept about how do we think about our enemies in times of war, as we had this summer, or hopefully in times of peace. The mother of our enemy isn't necessarily our enemy. Sometimes they might be, but isn't necessarily our enemy. That's the starting point for the rabbis. The starting point for the rabbis is that the shofar reminds us of the cries of the mother of our enemies. But now we have to figure out how do we get from crying to shvarim and truah. So okay, we have this we have this debate to try to figure out what's a shvarim, which is what is truah really? The nine staccato sounds of truah. Or is truah the three slower sounds of shvarim? And we know that it's based on the tears of the mother of Sisra, of crying. So the Gemara answers on the, the bottom of source number one, page three, Mar Savar Ginuche Ganach, Umar Savar Yilule Yalel. So one physician who says that it's a shvarim understands that vatiyavev, or crying, is like a moaning, a slow, uh, a slow type of crying. The other physician that says that it's a truah says, no, it's not slow crying. It's, this, is a, an, this is actually an onomatopoeia. It's ovulating. Ovulating is like the Moroccan Jewish women sound. That, somebody want to make the sound for me? Thank you, Dasi. So that's ovulating. That's what a truah is supposed to sound like. I didn't know you were Moroccan. That's what a truah is. That type of ovulation. Ovulation originally, classically, was in the context of a funeral. Um, but then we shifted it, actually, interestingly, 
to the context of smachot. So that's Yilule Yalel. You can hear the similarities of the words. What, the, what both positions agree on is that the sounds of the shofar is that of crying. The only question is, what kind of crying? Is it slow, moaning, or wailing on the one hand? Or is it a fast, piercing, staccato cry? But everybody agrees that it's crying. How many people ever cry in synagogue? Okay, that's very powerful. I think it's very rare. But when you take the davening seriously, it can, and I think it's meant to move you to that point. And one of the goals of the shofar is to wake us up, uru and to evoke tears. What do we cry about? What are the things, without revealing, not necessarily revealing about yourself, but what do people cry about in life? Loss. Loss. Okay, despair. What else? Regret. Regret. Joy. Okay, joy. Children. So I'll tell you a fascinating story. My, when I, I was in a shul, back when I was a real rabbi, as my mom likes to say, I'm no longer a synagogue rabbi. And when I was in the shul, I used to work with my baltopeya in advance. And he always asked me, what should be my kavanot? Should I look at the kavanot of the Ari? What should I think about? And I said, just think about your family. And so what he started doing for four or five years, he had pictures of his three children sitting on the, on the shulchan. Nobody saw it besides myself, himself, and the baltzvilah. He would sort of quickly take them away. And that was a very powerful kavanot, the kavanot of children, yeah. So there is a, a particular minhag for that, for that very reason. But there are two, two different types of tears that a person can have. They can be tears of loss, despair, and sorrow, or tears of joy and hope. And those are different experiences of, of prayer. You can really, really want a, a, the success of a child, of a loved one, of a spouse, of a parent, or you can somebody might be sick. But those can both lead to a type of intense, passionate encounter with the words of the liturgy that might then evoke tears. That's what the shofar is all about. The shofar is meant to somehow evoke that experience inside of us. Yeah? Okay, so, okay, so, so I think people don't usually. It's interesting. Um, you have to work, you have to work a lot harder for the shofar, but I, what I want to offer you is a way to hopefully kind of make that work. One of the ways that works for me in sort of conjuring up the power of the shofar is actually watching young children watching the shofar. When we talk about Harsinai, so young children, when they watch the shofar, they're seeing something that you and I aren't seeing. And that experience for me has been very evocative. And when I get, you know, if you, I, now I work as an overflow in a synagogue, so I get to call out the kolot. And I bring the kids up, and they're sort of mesmerized by this experience. Um, that that has been very evocative for me. So we'll talk more about what are the halachot and how those halachot shaped in order to evoke that from out of us, and then how you bring that into shul with you. That's what we're working. Look at the next page, source number four. So let's imagine that you lived in the first, second, third century someplace in Israel. You lived in Tiberia. 
and you had friends that lived someplace in Usha along the coast. And you grew up with the tkiah sounding, the truah, excuse me, sounding one way, sounding like the truah that we're familiar with, the staccato sounds. And then you go and you visit a family friend in another city, and you walk into Shul, and instead of hearing the truah, the staccato sounds, you hear the shvarim. So now you're a little nervous. Well, did I really fulfill my mitzvah? I only heard it, I heard it the other way. Those other people who live in Usha or in Tiberia or Tzipori, wherever they're living, have I fulfilled my mitzvah? It's still evocative. It still sounds like tears. But what's the nature of this debate? Does each side think the other side is actually okay? Is this kind of an elu ve'elu divir elokim chayim? Is this just different minhagim? Or is it that if you live in a Shararim town and you go to a Trua town, you got to bring your own shofar? Because those people, they've never really heard the shofar. And if you live in a Trua town, you go to visit a Shvarim town, well, those people, they've never heard the shofar in their whole lives. But how does this debate work? So, eat king Rabbi Avahu Bekesari. Rabbi Avahu made a rabbinic enactment in the Caesarea, Tikiyah, Shloshashvarim, Trua, Tikiyah. So, he established that sometime, at some point, at least, you have to do Tikiyah, Shvarim, Trua, the two together, Tikiyah. So, that's a little bit strange because that doesn't help us. We still don't know which is which. So, Manapshacha, how does this help us? What's the purpose of this? If trua means the ululation, the fast staccato sounds, le'aved tkiya, trua tkiya, just do the normal trua that we're familiar with. If it's the slow wailing sounds, le'aved tkiya, shlosha shvarim utkiya, just do the shvarim. So says the Gemara, he's not sure. Masaf So Rabbi Avahu had a suffix, which one it was. But there's something very strange. If you have a suffix, so what he should have done was do tikiyah, trua tikiyah, and then do tikiyah, shvarim tikiyah. Why is he mixing it all up? Why would you do tikiyah, shvarim trua tikiyah? Very strange. So the Gemara is now bothered by that and explains that what we do is first tikiyah, trua tikiyah, then we do tikiyah, shvarim tikiyah, then we do tikiyah, shvarim trua tikiyah, which is what you'll hear in shul in some combination of those sounds. Skipping to the last paragraph of these four, Ela Rebbe Avahu Mai Itkin, what was ultimately the purpose of this enactment? Because Igi Nucheganach, if it's a wailing or a moaning, Ha'avde, it was done. Iyululeyalel, if it's the ululations, the staccato of the trua, Ha'avde. So what's actually his doubt? Mesafkele Dilma Goneach Vialel. Maybe it's both types of crying. If that's the case, if it's really potentially two types of crying, maybe we need to flip it. Ihachi, if that's the case, le'avet nami ipcha, you should switch the shvarim into trua and do a tkiah, trua, then shvarim, then tkiah. If you're really not sure, so you got to cover all your bases and add in a fourth line, being shul even longer. So dilma yalel vegoneach. So it says the Gemara. No, stama demilta. Generally speaking. When something terrible happens to someone, which is often the way the Gemara's way of saying when somebody dies, first people wail, and then they cry. So there's something very fascinating about this, because they're taking the lived human experience, which this might be true for some group of people, but it may actually not be true for everybody. I mean, not everybody wails or moans, before they have a piercing cry. 
how could you not do 100? If you're already doing 90, you may as well do 100. That's my guess is probably what actually happened in shul at some point. And then Rebbe says, oh, it's the mother of Sisera, which is an interesting process of the way halacha gets developed over centuries. There is another source for the concept of 100 that the Meshachachma links directly to the Shofar, which is this notion of that when a woman is sitting on the birthing stool, she cries a hundred times. That's the last push, as it were. That one hundredth cry is what brings life into the world. What do you make of that? <laughs> it's 99 times she wants to die. Okay. <laughs> she wants to die. That's far. I didn't focus on that part, but thank you. <laughs> okay, so you have both kinds of tears here, right? The tears of both the pain and the suffering that ultimately leads to birth, yeah? Okay, for sure. In both, so uh, in both instances, it's either loss or potential loss, loss, and then birth. birth. And and so the, there are so many questions that come up because of that. Do men not cry? Is it easier for them to paradigmatically say to women or whatever, Miss Olivia? Mm -hmm. um, is it that women cry more publicly, so that's something people can uh, relate to? Is it just that? Is it birth of children? Death With women in particular. So I think there is truth. I see you just one sec. To the note, it tends to be even in our own world that men tend to cry less in public than women. Maybe in private also. I don't know. I can't speak for all men. Um, but my guess is that was probably true in the ancient world and in the medieval world, and maybe even more true. It's probably harder for a man to cry in public then than even it is now. And now it's really hard um, when. When a, when, a, when a male cries in public, it says something very different than when a female cries in public. Now, maybe it should be different in the world. The world is imperfect in that regard. But I think it's reflecting the reality of their presumptions that women like to cry more. Uh, I think it also probably reflects their fear of birth, that the assumption that birth was very close to death, um, which is why it's dangerous and why there are tears and why it's a, a person might die, and therefore it's linked to this day. It's the birthday of the world. And all of that liturgy is clearly pregnant, yeah. pun intended, with all of those different meanings. Yeah, there was a question in the back. Sorry, yeah. Exactly. The goal is for it not to just be um, a lonely cry, but a productive cry that is somehow emotionally cathartic that leads us to a better place of birth at the other end of the tears. 
A push. That's good. That last push. It's, it's, it's a powerful image. Yeah. Isn't there also a midrash that says that God counts the tears of women? Right. So if that's so, and if the rabbis were making more writing, thinking about it and then writing the whole time, if in fact this was the prevailing feeling that God actually counts the tears of women, giving God a very, very big heart mm -hmm. for, the, for their purposes, then this is this is very significant. That yeah. on the day when we're pleading at the gates, and that's in and of itself, chutzpah day. Right. So if on that day the image is of a God who counts the tears of women, and we're counting the the cries of either a woman in childbirth or or a woman whose son she doesn't know it has already mm -hmm. died, so filled with pathos, so then. This is a God that we, that I can pray to. Yes. Mm. This is what I'm just saying. This is the right. God that I can pray to. I can pray to a God who counts So one of the challenges of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy um, is that there are parts of the liturgy where I think people don't, well, people don't really connect so much. Where Malfio um, is tough, for example. Right. So I just read um, one of the Chabad remain from the early 20th century after. Tsar Nicholas II was um, assassinated in the 1917, 1918. Um, started crying. Said, "I'm so upset because we've lost our metaphor. <laughs> because Malfio has lost its meaning in the 20th and 21st century. Now, maybe if you lived in North Korea, it would be different. But living in a democratic society, um, we've lost our metaphor. We don't." Uh, when we talk about a king, usually a king these days isn't necessarily a good guy. And it's not somebody you want to bow to. But the God who counts people's women's tears in childbirth, that's a God I think all of us uh, would like to be connected to in some capacity or another. Yeah. I'm wondering about whether the Kabbalists saw the shofar as images and identified in the Shekinah, the feminine aspect. Oh, in particular. Was, and, and that was... In so particular? So I don't know enough. I'm not old, I don't know. It could be. I'm not yet 40, so. <laughs> don't tell my wife. Um, so the Mesha Chachma is where I found this Midrash from. So I put it there so you'll see he refers to this, the, the, um, the tears of the, the woman on the birth stool. So let's shift gears for a moment and talk instead of about kind of the, the spiritual mechanics of the Shofar, a technical question of bracha. What's the actual bracha to be recited? So you'll note that this is a sec the text here, which is in the section number two, source number one from the Sheilta, page number six, is a post-Talmudic work. It's a pretty soon after the Talmud. It's an early Gaonic piece of halachic literature. But as I noted, there's no bracha in the Gemara. So it takes until some later date, at which point the shofar was, was removed from Musaf. I shouldn't say it that way. The bracha of the shofar was removed from Musaf, and an additional set of 30 began to be blown before we actually started Musaf. At some point in time, it was likely the case that the shofar was part and part of Musaf. Anybody ever shul where the shofar is blown in the silent Musaf? Okay, so there's still a few shul. Your father shul out to visit? No. You're good. Okay. Um, so in the silent. 
Which I'm sure. Okay. So various minhagim around the country. Uh, generally speaking, Nusach Sfaradi does in the silent Amidah. Chassidim also. And then Ashkenazim, generally speaking, don't do it in the silent Amidah. It's actually something very powerful about it to sort of have the shofar really embedded in tefillah, but there's logistical problems, which is like everybody has to wait for the baltakeya, or you, maybe you didn't catch up to him. It's like a very strange thing uh, in terms of the mechanics of it. So that's likely what it really was originally. It was part of the salat lamida, then part of the repetition, and then after the repetition. At some point, um, it became before the amida for all sorts of complicated reasons. And this is now a description of the way it works post-Shachari, pre-Musaf, the, the minhag that we're, that we're familiar with. So it says, the Shiltos to Mechaivin, the Beit Yisrael, the Mitka Sarta. Chatzot is not a corn, but it's a shofar in the Shiltos Aramaic. Bechad B'Tishrei, Yichtiv B'Chadosh Hashvi. So you got to blow the shofar on the first of Tishrei. Hashta Hechi Ba'i Le'Avid. What do you have to do? So Mikme Dematzle Musaf, before Mitavin Musaf, the shlich tzibur has to stand up, literally, stand on his legs. The kule alma and everybody else is sitting. So technically speaking, the tzibur is not required to stand. Those, these come to be known as the tkiot de miyushav, not because we sit, but because we could be sitting. The kule alma takes the shofar day in his in his hand and says. The bracha, baruch atah Hashem, ukenu melech alam, yutam tav zibano, litkoa bashofar. Which is not the bracha that we're used to. The earliest version of this bracha that appears in Jewish literature is litkoa, as opposed to lishmoa. Now if you remember the bracha that we started with, the bracha of Musaf, is about God hearing, not about us hearing. The bracha of lishmoa, kol shofar, is all about us. It switches to the whole direction of this mitzvah. Litkoa b'ashofar is likely much more connected directly to the Musaf bracha that appears actually in the, in the printed liturgy to this day. Everybody can go buy a Koray Machzor on the way out. We'll plug for the Machzorim. Um, so here we have a different bracha than we're used to. And this is the first point in history where we have any access to it. Because the Gemara didn't mention it because it was just part of Musaf. So the Sheiltot is describing basically the creation of a new bracha. Generally speaking, uh, we don't like post-Talmudic bracha. Can anybody think of another post-Talmudic bracha? Any other? Yeah. Hadlakat Neirot Shabbat. Good. Anything else? Shastani Kirtzono. Hanotel Yayef Koach actually doesn't appear in the Talmud. There are a couple of these brachot that snuck into our liturgy. The Gra was furious about post-Talmudic brachot. The Vilna Gom does not allow people to say Shasani Kirtzono. He was upset with Hanotel Yav Koach. He never said anything about Halakat Nerot. I'm, I'm curious what his wife did. Um, I never said anything about this either. Um, but post Talmudic Brachot crop up over history. And now there's a, there's a whole new movement of writing new Brachot and Kilot. Um, but the Shilton is creating a new Bracha. It's a new practice because until now, Shofar was part and parcel of Yamidab Musa. Now we have this new thing. We have shofar as a standalone mitzvah. It's a new moment in history, in Jewish history. So now let's take a look at the next page.
going to look at a bunch of sections, or actually we're going to look at so much in detail, but the Rambam develops a whole approach to the shofar in a number of different places. So let's take a look at this She'ila. So, you know, the Rambam wrote a number of things. As a younger man, he wrote his Perusha Mishnah. In his middle ages, he wrote the Mishneh Torah. In his old age, he wrote the Guide of the Perplexed. But throughout his life, he was writing Shelot and Shubot and letters back and forth to different communities. Almost everything he wrote, uh, except for the Mishneh Torah, was in Arabic or Judeo-Arabic. So this question was obviously it was originally written in Judeo-Arabic and Arabic, and then translated into Hebrew. So it asks the questioner, "Ma ha'evdel ben lishmoa kol shofar uben al tkiat shofar," which means that the questioner knew that there were two different customs and understands that there's a potential difference between those two. They're obviously different. But the Rambam is now going to lay out for us what are the potential nafkaminas, what are the halakhic implications of either side. And here's the answer. Ha'hevdel benihem gadol ma'od. It's a big deal. The obligatory mitzvah is not the blasting of the shofar. Ela shmiyat hatkiya. It's not about making the sound. It's about hearing the sound. The hayotzei therefore, she'ilu because if that which was really obligatory was the blasting of the sound, kol adam ve'adam min Every adult male would have to blow shofar. So imagine what that would look like in shul. So it would really be a cacophony of shofarot. It might be beautiful, but I, I imagine getting a headache. <laughs> if it's really about mitzvah, if it's a mitzvah of the goof of the body, every, every male who's obligated it would have to do it. The hashomea, let's say I heard it, but I didn't actually blast it, I would not have fulfilled my obligations. Let's say I blast the shofar, but I myself couldn't hear. Therefore, a cheresh could blow the shofar, a person who was deaf. So I shoved a, you were just saying, earplugs in your ears. That I would actually have been yotze, even though I didn't hear it. We don't pass it that way. And that's not the way it works. The mitzvah of the shofar is not in the blasting, but it's in the hearing. And we don't blow, Ella, for the sake of hearing. The mitzvah is to sit in the sukkah, but not building a sukkah. There's no mitzvah to build one, only to sit in one. We only make the sukkah for the sake of sitting. The bracha on the sukkah is leishev ba'asukah, and not la'asot or livenot ha'asukah. According to the Rambam, if I had an app on my phone, and let's assume I could do that on the and the app was absolutely perfect. It sounded, it was indistinguishable from an actual shofar. I could make the perfect shofar, tikiyah, shvarim, tikiyah. And you could not tell the difference from an actual Human being. Would I be Yotze? Yes. No, because you're not hearing the shofar. 
unless you're allowed to hear, when it says lishma, it means the sound of any sound that sounds like a shofar, you have to hear. Okay, so do you have to hear? It's cold. if it's really about the kol shofar, so there's the act is going to be much better than any of us. It's going to be perfect to exact seconds. We can to now we'll know exactly how long. We'll never have to send the baltokea back. Yes. Why is it the face of, you know, like in here, you go to the little chauffeur for something, okay, sure, they can, it's clearly that important that they hear the actual blow of the chauffeur. It seems to me that it's not allowed. Oh, it's for sure not allowed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's not allowed because, what I'm trying to ask you, it's not allowed because of the act on the phone, because you could circumvent that. Right. You said it's too Okay, so let's. What about the following? My it happens to be that my nine-year-old son is a great baltokea. They take him all around the SAR every morning. He is the proudest kid in the world. He loves and he blows it for the older grades, for his older brothers in school. It's the greatest thing ever. And he has this, we have this big long shofar, and he's a short little guy, and he blows this big strong It's great. So let's say he blows shofar. He blows much better than I do. Right? He's a katan. So I used to, when I was in the shul, I would never blow shofar in shul because I had too much pressure. But I would occasionally blow shofar for shabins or in hospitals, those kind of situations. I could create 30 kolot, but he's much better than I am. He's only 10, so someday he'll be a baltokea for sure. He's clearly not chayav. So that's a, instead of an app, it's my son Yehuda, who's a very good baltokea. So can you be, and he could blow it exactly correctly, let's say. Would you be yotze? Why not, according to the Rambam? He's not, so why? Why does it matter if he's not obligated? The obligation is to hear the sound of the shofar. If you push this Rambam all the way, it sounds like he would say, even from my 10-year-old son, you could be Yotze. It sounds like that. right? If you, <laughs> that's another shoe. This You can see uh, Alyssa, Alyssa's... Um, Article and uh, Carmela's webinar. Um, the answer to that question is it would be the same as it relates to my ten-year-old son. Yeah. So I have a question about the Hadithim after Shabbat. Yeah. Well, usually the wife or the woman or the girls in the family do it. Is this uh, a mitzvah just for the women, or it's for? No. So so when I when I was living in a house with five guys on the college campus, we lit candles with the bracha. Sure. That's not that's not a gender mitzvah. That's in practice, it has become that way, but that's not gendered in the way but that that's so far. not for kol adam It's not. It's just one person in the house does it. But it's a person fulfilling it for the for the house. So there, it's allowed. There, but yeah, there, there's no gender limitations or a, uh, I guess age either. I mean, here you, you can use lights as your lahadi. But not every single person has to do it. It's all. It's a whole different. Right. It's different. It's different. It's different. So. If we if we push this Rambam all the way, and we take this the bracha the bracha of lishmoa kol shofar, you might think even somebody who's not obligated. So the Rambam won't allow that. So there are lots of different answers to that question. So the way the classic approach is to say that a person has to hear the sound produced by somebody who is they themselves also obligated, meaning a a kol shel of the sound of somebody who has the obligation. So that's why a 10-year-old or an app would not work. 
So that, says the Rambam, is the bracha. And there, there is a machloket, the machloket. So the Rambam is rejecting right the she'iltot. Therefore, we say lishmoa as opposed to litkoa. But the position of the she'iltot finds its way into actually into Ashkenazic literature. So if you look at this rush on the bottom, you should say that its doing is this completing of the mitzvah. And the Rav Ya quoted a Yerushalmi, it's a Yerushalmi that we don't seem to have. So already we have a machloket within Ashkenaz about this machloket, but the Litkoch falls away. Even though the Sheiltov introduced us to Litkoch for the first time, the Rambam very forcefully brings up Lishmoa, ultimately rejecting Litkoch. Let's look at a couple of other passages in the Rambam, because he, Kedarko Kodesh, does it in a very systematic and, in this case, very consistent approach to what it is that we're supposed to be say, hearing in shul. So in the Sefer HaMitzvot, Mitzvah Kuf Ayin, Hishetzivanu, Lishmoa Kol Shofar, to hear the Shofar, B'yom Rishon Mitzrei, Yom Yelachem. So says the Rambam in defining the Mitzvah, is Lishmoa Shofar B'yom Rishon. And then every area of, in the Mishnah Torah has a little um, a koteret, a little title, before that actual halakha begins to sort of outline the details. The koteret, the little title of the Chot Shofar is Lishmoa Kol Shofar Bechad B'tishrei, to hear it. And then when he outlines the beginning of the Chot Shofar, Mitzvah in Shofar Aleph Aleph, source number six, Mitzvah Asei Shel Torah Lishmoa Tshuat HaShofar B'Rosh Hashanah, Yom Tshurai Hiyalachem. So every single time the Rama brings it up, he is beautifully consistent. It's all about Shmi'ah. And then when he outlines the bracha, he says, Okay, so the Rambam, sort of, I think, as, perhaps as a result of the Rambam, nobody's ever heard the bracha of Litkoa. These days, no one, no one paskins against this Rambam. It's basically accepted by every community uh, in the contemporary Jewish world. And the Rambam sort of went through consistently getting rid of every every possibility of tkiyah, that it's all about shmiyah. But again, if you push the shmiyah all the way, you have to work hard to understand why it is that you need a bar chiyuva, a person who's obligated, to actually to produce the sound. Even, by the way, in his Guide of the Perplexed, source number 8, page number 9, New Year's last similarly for one day, right, in... In the, in, the, in, the Chama, in the Chumash. This year, even Israel gets stuck with a three-day Yom Tov. Um, for it is a day of repentance in which the attention of the people is called to their negligence. Therefore, the shofar is blown on it, as we explained in the Mishnah Torah. It is, as were, a preparation for an introduction to the day of the fast, meaning Yom Kippur. So here, the language is the shofar is blown on it. So he seems to shift a little bit, but throughout the Mishnah Torah, when he talks about Shofar and Rosh Hashanah, he's always talking about Shmiyah. It is interesting to note that when he talks about the Shofar of Yovel, that on the 50th year, right, this is a Shemitah year, we don't really know where the where we are in the Yovel cycle anymore, but Yom Kippur of Yovel, when blows the Shofar, um, that Shofar functions very differently for the Rambam. That Shofar is Kirat and Dror, the Chol Haaretz, the Chol Yosheveha, right, proclaim liberty throughout the land, that's a different kind of experience. That's a proclamation. That's a tkiah. That's about mitkoah, as opposed to lishmoah. 
For the Rambam, the Shofar of Yovel is an announcement of an experience of freedom. But the Shofar of Rosh Hashanah is an internal hearing of the voice and somehow bringing it inside of ourselves. It's about something going on internally. Yeah? When did it change from the sins of the second what we saw earlier? The human sits and one person's back. So I think what actually happened was is that, that the, the original tekiot were done as part of the Amidah, therefore everybody had to stand. The tekiot that were added on prior, I mean, between Shachar and Musaf, we were used to it. I don't think anybody ever sat. They're called Tkiot Dimiyushav, meaning they're the Tkiot in which the community could sit. As opposed to during the Amidah, where you can't sit, those are called Tkiot Dimiyushav. The Tkiot Dimiyushav, there are Tkiot when, if you wanted to, you could sit. There's a general practice to stand when uh, when fulfilling mitzvot. Um, except for? Lechev Vasukah. That's a funny one. I have mitzvahs to sit. Um, but generally speaking, okay, there's a different practices, but generally speaking, when we fulfill mitzvot, there's this... Always stood. Okay. People have different minagim with kiddush. There is... Anybody ever see the practice of giving staka in shacharit at um, sort of at the charot We Some people say give staka there. So there is... Some people claim. Does anyone have a sidur handy? Oh yeah. So the, some people say the reason we stand up at that place of the davening is not actually for the davening, but because this custom developed based on the actual kabbalah gari to give staka at that point. That because people were giving staka, they were either physically standing up to walk over to the bushki, or because there was a mitzvah going on, you were standing up because it was a moment of mitzvah. So there is this notion that we stand during the performance of mitzvah, but. For our purposes, the tzkiyot d'miyushav of the pre-musaf, one could theoretically sit. It's not the tzkiyot of sitting, the tzkiyot of theoretical sitting. That's the way I would understand. That's, that's what changed. I imagine that probably nobody ever really sat. Okay, so now the minchat chinuch, which is a commentary on the, on the, the sefer hachinuch. The sefer hachinuch is a sort of an elaboration of all the mitzvot based on the countings of the Rambam. So fascinating, a fascinating sefer. So he writes as follows. This is one of the classic answers to try to help understand the Rambam. Page 9, source 9. Vayin ma'ashe katavu ha'achronim. Dishneihem hen hashmiyah vehen hatkiyah. Both the hearing and the blasting. Hi ha'mitzvah. Both of them are actually obligatory. Vechad belo chavero lo mahani. One without the other is not sufficient. Tehashomea me'eno chayav. Gominashim bedomeh. Okay, so here's our problem. And if a person hears from somebody who's not chayav, like a woman, they're, they're not, they have not fulfilled their mitzvot. Alma, the mitzvah, lav b'shomea l'chud. It's not just about hearing, like I was trying to push that Rambam to say. Rak, tzarich liyot ha-tokea, ba'az hu yotzei davka mechavero ha-mechuyav. You have to hear from somebody who is chayav. V'kein, v'kein t'kiyah, b'lo shmiyah lo mahanyah. A person who is a person who is deaf or who stops up their ears is not allowed to blow shofar for the tzibur, as the Mishnah talks about which is where you're hearing a, um, an echo. Thank you. It does raise questions about microphones. 
Um, this is this is nineteenth century. Yeah. Was this a kind of sudden awareness? Oh my heavens, we we may be allowing <laughs> them to love. You know? There are many people before him, fifteenth, sixteenth century. Also, he just says it very clearly and succinctly. That's why I brought it. Um, there is a whole literature trying to answer this Rambam. Um, that started already on the page of the Rambam, the Sakara, the Kesev Mishnah, the Magi Mishnah, already on the page. So what's the difference if we focus, and let's now, now let's kind of bridge these two pieces, and then we'll go to the next source in a moment. If we focus on Shmiyah as opposed to Tkiyah, how does that relate back to the question of tears? I Meaning we started with this whole very lovely emotional catharsis of the Shofar, which does it more line up with Shmiyah, hearing, or Tkiyah, sort of the blasting? Yeah? I think it lines up more with Shmiyah in terms of hearing about the office hearing about the Okay. Okay, so it's in, yeah? But also, if he focuses on blasting, then we get lost in terms of the technicalities of actually, like, bothering about physically using sound and not actually what the sound itself should be. Mm -hmm. So that actually does happen. People sometimes get caught up in the details of the sounds. That's not to say the details aren't important, but um, I remember. So when the baltokea can't make the sound, it's always a hard experience. I'm sure everyone has experienced that, where the baltokea is just like shooting blanks. It's not working, and it like it ruins the whole day for everybody. So much pressure, like Nebuchadnezzar, this person who's been working so hard, and just doesn't come out. Sometimes that happens. Um, last year, actually, when I was in this, I was in a shul where um, where I was functioning, serving as the rabbi. Somebody else was going shofar, and the last thirty, he couldn't make a sound. So I, I just took his shofar, and he became the mockery, and I became the baltokea. It was like um, it's like a Superman moment. The rabbi runs in. <laughs> um, so sometimes you have to do that. That being said, there are a lot of details about how the sounds are supposed to look and the shape and when they start and when they stop. And sometimes they send my baltokea back if they made a mistake. So there are details, and the details are significant. But if you get lost in those details, you can sometimes lose the whole spiritual side of the experience. And that's always the challenge in all of halakha. The details, for me, sometimes bring up the meaning. The challenge is not to get lost in those details. Yeah? Does the is he Yotze when he blows, or does he have to listen to someone else blow for him? He, is, he, has to hear, he, he has to be able to hear from himself. Because uh, that would answer uh, your question. Right. In fact, he was not Yotze from his own blowing, then, the, yes. then it's, then it's right. from, from, from to the X. Right, it's all the way. Or if you, or if you imagine like a, like a hearing person, I always picture blowing shofar through like a hole, but he's in another room. Or they have a long shofar going through something and he totally can't hear, not because he's deaf, but maybe just plugging his ear because it's not over there. Yeah. And a deaf person. Or a deaf person. Right. So that was my question. They could not blow for the they cannot blow shofar for the tzibur. Which is raises a whole fascinating question of the status of the cheresh and halakha, meaning even if one wants to obligate a cheresh in many mitzvot, um, and therefore allow them to lead tefillah or receive aliyot, I'm not sure. Kiyat Shofar is sort of where the rubber meets the road, because it's a mitzvah of hearing. So I don't know, did, did you guys talk about this in Rabbi Midrash? That in particular? Did Rabbi Shafar want a paskin? He's always afraid to paskin. <laughs> um, so even if you could obligate Khershim, deaf people today, because they speak on um, Tzfat Simanim, 
the English is sign language. Um, we want to obligate them in you might, you might, shofar might be a place in which you say sort of out of but not including shofar. So, yes? Since sound is just vibration, and since the sounds during blowing not only manifest at one end, they manifest throughout the, the fabric of the shofar, um, what about holding on to the shofar? Okay, so that's good. So let me push it even further. I remember as a child we had for a while there was a signer coming to shul at my parents' synagogue on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, signing parts of davening on the rabbi's sermon. And there was a, a deaf community that actually started showing up regularly. Of course, the first time, there was only like one deaf person. But then you start doing this, and the community realizes, oh, this is a great place to go to synagogue. Let me show up at this, at this synagogue. And so one Rosh Hashanah, they had like a full row, a full row in the front of a sort of a deaf community. And what they did was they gave them balloons that were blown very tightly. And when the shofar blasted, they could actually feel those vibrations. Um, it was yeah. very, very powerful. Well, in, in, in our synagogue, it has an AL in parallel no, uh -huh. In the general, they do come up and actually they hold. hold. So that's beautiful. I've never, I've never seen that, but I've seen the balloons. The balloons are very powerful. Okay. Um, I did once have a kid hold on to the shofar, but they weren't being invited to do so. <laughs> um, but that's it. I guess I wonder. If it's if it's really about sound and sound is just a vibration, if that would work, what about like a a hearing aid, a person who can hear, or a cochlear implant by a person who's right? those those raise interesting questions about hearing aids on Shabbat and all sorts of all sorts of tangential questions. Um, how sound works? Yeah, Leah. Mm -hmm. Right. It wouldn't even work. So the reverberation is somehow the, the bore. The reverberation means that it's not just the the vibration. Maybe that's correct. Right. I mean, it makes it's logical. Yeah, that's what I was saying. Cochlear implants would be better than in here because it's actually the sound is going to the to the. Uh, the note to the nerve, to where it's getting, yeah. Um, this is a very big or hot deal. Yeah. But I just, um, I don't know your name, um, she just brought this home. Pardon me. At Tanglewood last year, during a music concert, it was Joan Baez. Uh -huh. I don't know if anyone was there. It was my blowing, blowing books. Oh, there was a signer off on the side, which I didn't see. My husband says, wow. There's a signer. So I said, well, what about the melodies? Mm. It does the signer can't sign the melodies. But the Whoa. shofar, if you're talking, it's totally different. The whole shofar is not the words in the John Baez songs. Right. It's, it's just the melody. Metaphor. It's only the tkiya. Mm -hmm. So how what do you do? How can you sign, sign the tkiya? Mm. You really can't. You can hear the vibrations and you can feel it inside you and you can feel the balloon. But you can't have a you can't actually hear it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it raises. We were gonna. I was at. I mentioned to some of my students. I was at a Beit Hillel, Hillel which is an organization in Israel. They had these Batavia Drash where they talk about different types of Jewish communal issues, and they were talking about Judaism and disability, in particular dealing with um, with the deaf community. And um, they were going to do. Maybe they'll do it next year. Um, Rosh Hashanah. So Simanim for Rosh Hashanah. 
and to use svat simanim, that's why I said it in Hebrew, sign language, um, and have signers throughout the country in sort of a whole group of batekneisio. They didn't do it this year, I'll push them, maybe we'll do it next year. But it's a beautiful idea, and we're going to do it across the, across the Atlantic. So maybe at some future date. So if it's about Shmiah, which is the, actually the, the language of the bracha, it's about kind of what's happening inside of me, the way that I internally experience the sounds of the shofar. It's not purely about the person who's blasting the shofar. And technically, one has to make sure that you hear from a bar chiyuba, a person who's obligated. Then I think we can begin to move down that more spiritual direction. If it was really about shofar, it was just producing the correct sound, then I think it feels to me less spiritually alive, less about the emotional cathartic experience. But since it's about Mishmo, about what's happening as I take the sound in, I think it allows us to move down that path of the shofar as a type of tefillah. And the shofar itself, the sounds of the shofar, as an actual experience of prayer. Okay, so that's all of this that I said until now was is the way and that's real crying. That welcome here anytime, Adina. That was. Um, this is the way that when I heard this uh, this type of shiur, what's the baby's name? Welcome. That's a good New Year's uh, gift. When I first heard this a a version of this shiur in yeshiva in Israel, this is where the shiur stopped. So up until now, I haven't actually said anything of my own. Everything I said until now is from my teachers. I've heard versions of this type of shiur from Rabbi Linzer. You can actually hear a version of this from him, from him online. I think at the Chovei website. I heard it when I was in yeshiva in Israel. This is sort of a this is the classic approach where which at which point this is where it typically stops. What I want to do is push us further to say that, okay, so the shofar is an instrument of wordless prayer. But what does that mean? How do I actually accomplish anything? Meaning, I don't have a liturgy. I don't have anything to do. I don't have words to stand and daven as the shofar is being blasted in shul. So what am I supposed to do? When I hear the sounds, shvarim, what's supposed to be happening? Am I supposed to be thinking about specific things? And there are, by the way, there are books of kavanot, whether it's kavanot alpi kabbalah or kavanot of all sorts to try to figure out how the shofar works. But now I want to push us beyond where it usually goes. uh, Page number 10, section 3, wordless ritual. So we don't have so many wordless rituals. We like to, rabbis like to make up Nusach in, in sense of having liturgy. Bachya um, wrote a very important work of Jewish philosophy called Chavot Halavavot, in which he categorizes all of mitzvot into two different groups, Chavot Halavavot, things that are heart-based, sort of emotional experiences, and things that are Chavot Haguf, body, physical experiences. So he, and he sets out a list of which is which. And then he says, and he says as follows: A person is made up of a body and a soul. They're both good. Meaning, he's not saying that the goof is bad, the body is bad, and the soul is good. Good. They're both gifts from Hashem. 
What makes the soul different is that we can't see it. That language of Enov, 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 Enov is actually the way the Talmud refers to God in some cases. God is Enov, Oto. We have to worship God. Something that is outward. And something that is inward. That which is visible to the outside. Those are the bodily obligations. And now he lists what are chovot haguf. prayer, batzom, fasting, tzedakah, lumod Torah, ulamda, to teach it, vasot sukkah, v'lulav, v'tzitzit, u'mezuzah, u'ma'akeh, the fence on your roof. One of these things is not like the other. Which didn't belong on that list? Okay, tefillah. He calls tefillah chovat haguf. Now we're used to thinking about tefillah as chovat halev, avodash halev. But here says Bachia, no, the liturgy, this kind of is chovat haguf. It's when you close the sidur that it becomes chovat halev. That's something very different. Yeah. But you, you could say outwardly, it seems to me um, everything he's saying here are things that other people can see you do it. Right. You know, as opposed to inward things. And, you, and if you're part of the minyan that, or you don't go, you know, it's just like a whole big thing. Oh no! I don't. I wouldn't think of it that way. He, for him, this is a. And I think for him, it's deeply spiritual. I think he's pushing us to think about tefillah as something other than the words you say in the siddur. Meaning, tefillah is not about saying That's not what tefillah is. I mean, I'll put it the other way. For him, that's a chovat haguf. But there's something else, which is a chovat halev, which is not about reciting the liturgy. The liturgy is really important. You gotta do the Chovot Ha'ivarim. It's part of the system. But there's something else that's beyond that experience. Let's see how he lists out the Chovot Ha'levavot to see how he understands that category, and then we'll compare the two. Acha Avodah that which is internal. He Chovot Ha'levavot, that's the obligations of the heart. Tsuna Matspun is the modern Hebrew word for the conscience. They, they couldn't have used that language. It's, Pre-Freud. We should unify God in our heart. A little bit of medieval philosophy. Believe in God and God's Torah. We should be humbled before God. We should be embarrassed before God. We should love God and have faith in God, and give our souls over to God, and remove ourselves from that which God hates, and we should do everything for God's name, we should, is probably the word for meditate, on that which is good from God, Something that's totally outside of ourselves. Totally inside of ourselves. That nobody from the outside would be aware. Which means that... So what, is this, what does this category sound like? Besides sort of medieval philosophy. Which, not so interested in that part. But what does this category sound like? 
Say again. Okay, so this is an internal spiritual meditative experience. He doesn't make a hierarchy here, meaning it's not like Chovot, Talavavot are better than Chovot Ta'ivarim. It's not that this is better or worse, but they're different. Most of what happens in most of our Jewish life are Chovot Aguf. What happens in Shul is a Chovot Aguf. But there's one point in davening in which we, I think we can claim that in fact the Shofar, even though if I were to be honest about Bachya, he would like to put Shofar on the Chovot Goof side. It's very much embodied. You see it. I want to claim that what's supposed to be happening in the shofar is the sidur is supposed to be closed and it's supposed to be a chovat halnevavot, something internal, that which is safun inside of us. That's the goal of the shofar. Once you start thinking of the shofar this way, it shifts the experience of shofar and shul. Instead of shofar being about hearing 100 sounds with very specific details, which the chovot have very more important, the shofar becomes the most powerful experience of Rosh Hashanah Tzvilah that actually allows you to bring yourself, your most real self, to shul. Because if all we do in shul is read somebody else's words, there's power to that. And you can even sometimes cry. But the shofar is actually meant to evoke your own emotional, spiritual, personal experience and allow it to bubble up and out. That's what the shofar is supposed to be about. And it's hard to do that. Because the shofar is, you know, has a whole pageantry to it, which is very beautiful. That's what you're supposed to be experiencing when you're in Shul on Rosh Hashanah. And that's what we're practicing for in Elul, as we sort of build our way forward. How do you actually bring yourself to your own, all your spiritual baggage and all your tears and all your fears and all of your hopes? That's what the Shofar is for. The Amidah is good for that. But that's a Chobat That's this kind of Amidah. Close the Sidur. And you blast the tears of the shofar, that's a chavat Then your heart is connecting directly to Hashem. Maybe the shofar is carrying you up there somehow. That's where you're supposed to be at Rosh Hashanah. Yes? I'm wondering whether that's one of the powerful effects of Nikonim during services. Okay. So there are other tools that try to accomplish the same goal. So. I think there's a difference between nigun in which you sing the words of davening and nigun like we started with with a wordless tefillah. Wordless tefillot, I think, have that ability. And different types of nigunim can put you in different modes. There are ecstatic nigunim. There are contemplative nigunim. There are nigunim where you want to get up and clap your hands. And there are nigunim when you want to close your eyes. And those are different experiences. And I've learned for myself over the years, I'm much more on the contemplative side than I am on the ecstatic side. That being said, in shuls, it's really hard to do. I found it very hard to model that. So I end up trying to get everybody dancing in a circle. Which is fine, too. It's not really what my is Yeah. Um, is this contemplative or eternal part of Tefillah, is that uh, something that in our in Hamash, in Tanakh, we're expected to, to see 
and that's what the prophets are are trying to do when they're when they're um and when they're set aside. The Alanabi is an ascetic. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the uh, Moshe goes um, to the back of Midbar for how many number of years when he um, uh, tends to Yitro's sheep. And before they get to the to the Gashi, before they get to the physicality, okay, Moses, no more praying and contemplating. Now you got to save Israel. Right. Before he gets to that place, he's got to serve his time of going internal. Is mm -hmm. that? Part of it is that is that necessary before you can experience? I mean, I'm using that as a Torahic example, but I'm asking on a personal level. Before we can, are we supposed to when we prepare an elul and we hear this and we're getting to that place? We need elul because otherwise right, can we jump. can't get to Mitzrayim or wherever we need to be. We can't get there. Just okay, transport us right to the place where we have to hear internally. You sort of have to practice. I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll jump off of that in a moment. Yeah. No, no, they're just trying to get. I think she wants to be so much girl. She's one. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. i that in some ways the inwardness is that our belief system, the way we mm -hmm. connect to, to Hashem, and that you can spend your whole life shopping <laughs> like the craziest man in the world, but that doesn't mean that you're really dominant. Right. So in some ways, there's a connection between everything on the Gashmiris and, and the Right, so that's powerful motion. I'll come back to the point in a moment, but I think that you're right, but when you the, what I want to point out in that list is that we're probably more surprised mm -hmm. by the fact that Silah is on the physical side. Yes. Right? And that's surprising to us. It's not surprising to us that Sukkah is on the physical side of Silah. And so you're right. You can enliven any physical mitzvah through a greater spiritual understanding. And that's obviously the goal. That's the goal of, you know, that's why this Beit Midrash exists, is to try to bring, it, to bring it alive. I want to flip it on its opposite side, which I didn't bring you sources for, but I want to think of the very opposite direction we've spoken about a little bit in yeshiva over the last couple of weeks. There's this whole um, pietistic tradition going back to Ashkenaz, early Ashkenazic Jewry. There are no sources because it, it would have been too complicated. Called Hasidic Ashkenaz, the early German pietists. Not Hasidic Matthias, Hasidic like in Germany in the, in the, in the first uh, year 1000, 2000, 3000. And they had this whole tradition of a whole other kind of tshuva. That was very, very physical. It included self-immolation, giving yourself lashes, or giving being lashes by the rabbi. There actually was a practice that if you were talking in shul, the rabbi had a whip and he could whip you. So I tried to bring it back in my synagogue and the board didn't let me get away with it. I don't know why. But there's this very physical, sometimes scary type of process of tshuva. They talk about rolling in the snow. They talk about all these kind of somewhat strange behaviors. They talk about if somebody did something really bad, they would lie on the steps of the shul. People would walk over them or on them. Very powerful, scary kind of physical tshuva. There's a whole literature about this. Going back to the Sefer HaChassidim, the Rokeach, it appears a little bit in Rabbi Yona. There are Shelot and Shuvot where people will say, I did sin X. I need to know what response, what physical thing Y now has to happen. 
how much do I have to fast, how much do I have to do. In a certain sense, that's like the opposite of all of this. There's a certain fear around this. This feels, I think it feels to many of us, not Jewish for whatever reason. It's for sure Hasidic Ashkenaz and the church in Germany were somehow talking to each other. Um, but there is a power to what they're doing. Because what they're saying is that the things that we do to our body can actually impact our soul. What they're trying to remind us to do is not make this mind-body dichotomy quite so strongly. Meaning, if I, when I physically do things, like, for example, an Arab Rosh Hashanah attending the Mikvah, when I physically do things like fasting on Yom Kippur, those things impact me in ways that are different than my usual life. I don't usually spend 25 hours not eating. That physical type of self-limitation is a reminder that I can use my body to get to my soul sometimes when done in a sort of a normative, healthy way. Maybe Hasidi Ashkenaz went a little bit too far. What the, what the Hasidi Ashkenaz are teaching us or modeling for us is that the body and the soul are not so far apart. And what here I think part of Chavot HaLevavot is doing is saying that the soul and the body are not so far apart. And when you can enliven your physical behaviors, whether it's the shofar or the lulav or the sukkah, with a deep spiritual background, then both parts get better. And it's important to remember that we live in a world where we tend to separate those two out very much. Where we live kind of very intellectually in our heads, or we live in our hearts, but then we leave our bodies aside. Or we go to the gym and work our bodies and our hearts on the other, back in the Beit Midrash. So part of the challenge, I think, which the Chavot HaLevavot is talking about here, is bringing those two worlds together. The Guf and the Nefesh, the Chavot HaLevavot and the Chavot HaIvarim. So before we turn the page over, we're going to end in like 10 minutes. We'll give you a little bit of a break to breathe. So I wanted to offer two things to try to do between now and Rosh Hashanah, picking up a little bit about this notion of preparing. So I described to you my Baltokeh with the little pictures of his children up at the Bina. So there's no reason that only the Baltokeh can have a little Kavanah. So take an index card, take three index cards, one for each set of skill, and write something, one sentence, three sentences at the most. Not more than that. It can't be more than three sentences. What do you really want from this next year? Right? You don't have to show it to anybody, you don't have to show it to me, you don't have to show it to your spouse, you don't have to show it to your kids or your parents. Write it down in a full sentence. Dear God, I want, insert, the following year. And when you're sitting there in shul, and when the tzikiyot are being blasted, that becomes your kavanah. Don't wait till Yontif morning. Do it now. You have Elul to prepare. Use Elul. Really use Elul. And you can bring more than three cards, you can bring one card, you can bring a whole piece of paper if you want. But limit it. Don't write a paragraph or a page, two, three sentences at the most. I promise you if you try it, your experience with the shofar will be different. If you do it, please let me know somehow. You can find me on the Shabbat Marat's website. Let me know you try it. I've done it once or twice in the years of sort of, I always somehow get too busy preparing the book or whatever. It changes your experience. It forces you to concretize, this is what I want to focus on. It could be something that's prayerful or tearful, or it could be something that's hopeful 
can be very different. It doesn't have to be a person who's sick or, or a person who's in despair. It can also be you want success. Bring with you to shul and see what happens. Because what that does is it turns the the physical chovata goof into a chovata lev. Just by closing the door and bringing yourself up to the plate. That's really ultimately the goal of that moment of Tkiyat Shofar. Okay, let's turn over to the last page. <laughs> People know who this is? Stevie Wonder. Stevie Wonder. <laughs> people used to call him that? Yes, people did. Little Stevie Wonder. I like it. So, there is a whole literature in the Jewish world, in Hasidic Breslov in particular, but amongst others, about talking to God. So, this is my second tip for preparation. The first preparation is to write something down. The second tip is to quote Reb Stevie, have a talk with God, which means when you're davening, in addition to, not instead of, but in addition to the matveya, sort of the, the liturgy of the Sidur and the Machzor, take a few minutes at the end of the Amidah, right after you say, um, and before you take your three steps back, you're sort of still in that moment of encounter. You're still standing there. In that moment, take 10 seconds. It's actually longer than you think. Take 10 seconds and say something to God in whatever your first language is. Hebrew, English, Yiddish, whatever it might be. Just say something. Anything. Say, thank you, God, for a nice day of weather. Say, please help me um, when I have to give this presentation at the Yomi Unit. I hope that it goes well. <laughs> Anything you want, just 10 seconds, and keep doing it. Do it for a week, do it for three weeks, do it for a month. Take it through from Elul through to the end of Tishrei. When you get to Simchat Torah and you're dancing with the Torah, it will be a different type of hakafah. It will be a different experience. I promise you. Don't write this one down. You're not allowed to write this one down. It's different. There's a difference between writing down your prayers or your thoughts or your hopes and just articulating them with your voice. What you might find is that one impacts the other. So if you start talking to God for 10 seconds a day, you might find that things you write become a little bit different over time if you kind of keep track of it. One of the things that I used to do, I stopped doing it because I ran out of things to buy. Every year I would buy a new Sidur or a new Maktor, and I would write stuff in the margins of my books, of my Sidurim. So if I look back at my Maktor from the first Rosh Hashanah when I was giving Drashot in my shul and I was like, 23 years old. I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I was terrified. Stood up there and he would keep mas. What am I doing here? I don't know how to darshan. I don't know anything. And there were these like grown-ups in shul who had real life issues. And I'm this little pisher trying to tell them something on Yom Kippur. That's really terrifying for a 23-year-old young rabbi. So my notes are very nervous. <laughs> and then over the course of years, I look back at them with those notes and they become very different. And it's interesting to look back. Sometimes I have to hide them from my kids because I don't want them to see that I was nervous about them. But it's something that if you keep coming back to, not only over weeks, months, but years, it will really create a different type of davening experience for you. Both on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur, where it's a particularly difficult, but also just on Tuesday, when, when maybe there's a little bit more freedom. If you're on your own, pray, pray privately or quietly.
So Stevie Wonder in this in this uh, in this um, I don't know how to call it poem. It's a kind of a feud. Um, if you on the document that um, that's online, you can actually click through the link, of, and it'll take take you to an online version of him singing the song "Have a Talk with God." So if you go online, you can find it, or just Google it. It shows up on YouTube. Um, and he really developed something very beautiful here. He starts out, there are people who have let the problems of today lead them to conclude that for them life is not the way. But every problem has an answer, and if yours you cannot find, you should talk it over with him. Interesting that it's gender. He'll give you peace of mind when you feel your life's too hard. Just go have a talk with God. It's so powerful, and it's so simple, and not, we don't do it enough. And he's blind. Interesting. I wonder when he wrote. Uh, was he blinded from a, from a young age? Uh -huh. So Stevie Wonder has a lot of very religious songs. A lot of his music. A lot of his. He's an interesting poet. Um, many of us feel we walk alone without a friend. That's one of the real challenges that we all feel in life: feeling lonely, never communicating with the one who lives within, forgetting all about the one who never ever lets you down. And you can talk to him anytime; he's always around. When you fear life's too hard, just go have a talk with God. So what he points out here is that doesn't need to only be in shul. So if you look at Chassidei Breslov, talk about going into the woods, or even walking down the streets of Manhattan. Well, he's the only free psychiatrist that's known throughout the world. So this is the, one of the ways that which rabbis get taken advantage of. The rabbis don't charge for pastoral counseling. Congregants make appointments, and they share what's going on in their lives. Rabbis are free psychiatrists. For solving problems of all men, women, little boys, and little girls. When you feel your life's too hard, just go have a talk with God. Okay, then the song continues. It basically repeats itself. So my bracha for each of us, this Rosh Hashanah, is that as we're doing a lot of this, a lot of davening of chovot al-vavot, chovot aguf, that you're able to close the door just a little bit, bring your own spiritual and emotional experiences to the tziyot, and have a talk with God. How did I find it? Who doesn't know about Stevie Wonder? I don't know. I don't remember how I found it. So we'll take a 15 minute. We'll take a 15 minute break, and then I will start at a quarter to I
I don't know. It's very nice. <laughs> I don't know. I like this one better. It's a little, it's a little more like from your, from you. you know. Yeah. I love it. It's great, great, great general. Thank you. I almost felt like I wanted to get to the end point with that. Because, because. They're totally different. You know, it's not about the tears are not from loss and joy. They're from direct experience. Mm. So it's like that's the third Right. And that's nice, that's a good point. So maybe that's perhaps part of my journey. So I came to a lot of the spiritual material through kind of a more traditional education of So I'm coming to it from that direction. And but I hear you. There's the, the mystical tradition. You know, sometimes I feel like all this, all this study is very lovely, but it's a bit obscuring. I hear you. And the work that you're doing is wonderful. It's like the speed dominant is just. Yeah. I mean. It doesn't give anyone a chance to have an experience of anything. I mean, you know, ideally you should dominate and think about what you're dominating and let it come in. But it's like, I like to, you know, the metaphor I use, it's like people in dominant world. It's like there's a safe, and there's combination to the safe. Unless they turn the pumpkins exactly right, the safe won't open up. And that's their metaphor. You know, but, yeah, I'm not going to understand the metaphor, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's very hard. <laughs> it's in here to enter getting into the show far is the beauty and the grace. Mm -hmm. And the rest is no, there's this thing, guys. Oh, I have to go to the hospital and go show for this little old lady. Right. Well, if the little old lady's obligated to hear it. So it's uh, interesting. The little old lady's not obligated to hear it. So why um, the custom has developed mm. that women have taken on shofar in a different way. Uh -huh. So the way to think about it is that women are to shofar as men are to marry. Marib is not obligatory. Oh, yeah, but they all make they men, all make themselves crazy to go. Okay, same as women in the shofar. But a guy would feel that he a guy feels obligated to go tomorrow. And then women feel obligated to hear the shofar. Well, you mean if a guy said, "Hey, I'm not obligated. I'm only showing. I'm not. I'm not showing. Forget this ten o'clock marib crap. Leave <laughs> me alone. I'm going to mid for three o'clock, and that's it. I'm finished for the day." Technically speaking, Marib says marib is a reshoot. Yeah. One is permitted to have a marriage, not obligated. Now we have a we, the community, has accepted a farm yeah, ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's what's happened with Shafar. But it has the it certainly has the force of obligation in the community. And I think women experience Shafar that way too. Women the weak women want to make sure yeah. to be there for the field. You bet they do. And they want to believe Even the most extra, far from Lakewood person you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just a by marriage, by marriage. Uh, <laughs> for sure. You know, they they, they they try to get there. For sure. Well, yeah. That's what they do ones later in that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. 
because women perceived it as an obligation. Well, I have, let me just say, uh, I have known women who would come home from school and go shopping for their sick husband. So, eh, whatever. I'm not going to tell you who these women were, but... Thank you. That aside, I think that you want to add one more thing. Yes, sure, please. Is that when you are listening, and you're being when you're listening, you don't need to count out the next one's going to be sorry, and the next one's going to be to be a... You don't need to know that. Somebody else is let it just happen. Nice. Thank you. I'll you use that. Hi, I'm Dutch. I Yeah. 
Julie's presentation? For the first half or so. What is she talking about? She did like Rabbi Dachi Shmael first. Um, and then. What did she say about Eeyob though? I left the Eeyob part. That's what I stuck out. It was mostly like set up. Eeyob like seemed like a smaller piece. I see. Okay. I know what to do it because they. Is anybody here going to come at 315? I have no idea. I can start with something, I guess. All right, folks. Let's. Do you want the microphone? 
I guess so, yeah. People would come closer to make life a lot simpler, actually. Right? All right. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll start with some general things. Uh, I don't know. You tell me. Sounds like a song. Is that good? All right, folks. Let's. Um, I know it's a bit early. Let's let's start anyway. And if people can move closer, it will be good. So you can't come any closer. That's for sure. All right. The um, this Yomi Yuan is, of course, intended to prepare us for Rosh Hashanah. And uh, the focus has been on the chauffeur, which is the main mitzvah of Rosh Hashanah, and also the tefillot of Rosh Hashanah. And the particular focus on the Akedah. So I thought it would be a good thing for us to say something about the Akedah. I know that Judy Kushner spoke about it. I'm not trying not to repeat what she said. I wasn't here when she spoke. So if, you, if I am repeating, just let me know. I'll say something else. And then to look at the section of the prayers in which Akedah Yitzchak is mentioned. Uh, let me begin by um, saying something about the, the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, prayers including the Torah reading of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, the central, quite literally central prayer of Rosh Hashanah is to be found in the Musaf section. Musaf section has three parts, three main uh, themes that are unique to Rosh Hashanah. One is called Malchiyot, one is Zichronot, and one is Shofarot. These are the three themes of the service, and each one of them has a, has a blessing. When I say three, we all know that these three blessings appear only in the, in the Musaf service of Rosh Hashanah. In all the other services of Rosh Hashanah, we have seven blessings, as opposed to nine. In other words, every... Let me just back up a second. The... I know most of you know this, but I'm going to say it anyway. The way the, the Midah is structured is three blessings at the beginning, three blessings at the end. That's uniform. What's in the middle? So during the week, we have 13 intermediate blessings, a total of 19. We call Shimon Esrei 18. There were once 18, but we have 19. And those are requests that we have in the middle of the Shimon Esrei. On all the other days, festivals, all the festivals, with one exception, we have a grand total of seven blessings, three in the beginning, three at the end, one in the middle. The one in the middle is, has a name. It's called Kedushat Hayom. The blessing, the text of the intermediate blessing, that one blessing is an expression of the sanctity of the day. And that's true on Shabbat. That's true on Pesach. That's true on Shavuot. That's true on Sukkot, Shemini Yatzeret. Even Yom Kippur, in which the Musaf can go for hours, but it's one blessing. It's just one blessing. Which has the Kadesh Yisrael V'yom HaKippurim, one blessing. The exception is Rosh Hashanah. On Rosh Hashanah we have nine blessings. As I said, Malchiot, we have three immediate, three at the end. And we have the three intermediate blessings, Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. Those are the three, special. 
most special service, structurally the most special service that we have. The question, of course, one can ask, which effectively the Talmud already asked the question, why do we have nine blessings in Rosh Hashanah? Why don't we have ten? Because in addition to Malfiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot, what happened to the normal blessing? Mekadish Yisrael, the in our liturgy, Yom Hazikaron, the blessing we say all the other services of Rosh Hashanah. What happened to that blessing? So we should have ten and not nine. But we have nine because we actually are combining the blessing of the day with one other blessing. But, but we, the practice of the Jewish people has been for a very long time, that we combine the blessing of Malchuyot together with the blessing of Kedushat Hayom. <coughs> Malchuyot is God's kingship. So we combine the theme of God's kingship. God is king, king of the whole world. We combine that blessing in Musaf together with the blessing of, of Malchuyot. So we have nine. Kedushat Hayom is included with the blessing of kingship. That itself, that's not, in the Talmud, that's not the only opinion. There's another opinion that we combine the blessing of remembrances with the Kedushat Hayom, but we don't follow that opinion. And the debate is not just an academic one. Presumably, the debate is some, has something to do with the very day of Rosh Hashanah itself. That is to say, what is the basic theme of Rosh Hashanah? Kedushat Hayom is an expression of the sanctity of the day, the fact that we combine it with Malchiyot, it's our practice, means presumably that the basic idea of Rosh Hashanah is God's kingship. That's the fundamental idea. It's a kind of enthronement day, it's a declaration that God is king. Having said all that, from, an, from the other side, what does it mean to say that God is king? Well, what does that actually mean? That's a big question. But I'm asking a more local question. What does it mean in terms of the structure of the service to say that God is king? What does the king do? What is God doing as king? So in the it's a good question in general. It's funny, the Torah, which talks about the king, we read it a few weeks ago in the synagogue, tells us what the king's not allowed to do. Can't have too many horses, too many wives, too much money, can't take you back to Egypt. The Torah actually never says what the king does do. It leaves it up to the book of Shmuel to try to get some sense of what kings are supposed to be doing. In any event, the king, the primary thing that the king is doing on Rosh Hashanah is, as, as reflected in our service, because we have Malchiot, then we have Zichronot, and we have Shofarot. We'll focus this afternoon on Zichronot. There was an opinion that Zichronot is combined with the Kedushat Hayom, but it's interesting that in our liturgy, we are referring to Rosh Hashanah as Yom HaZikaron, which suggests to us that the idea of memory or remembrance is pretty important in conjunction with Rosh Hashanah. Now, what is, what is the idea that God is remembering? We will be looking at this starting in a few minutes, together with the Akedah, but what is the, the first thing we can say very simply our first encounter in the liturgy with God remembering, Atazocher is how it's Atazocher Maseolam, Kedem, that the idea of God remembering is one thing in the beginning, which is what? Which is? Noach is mentioned later. Noach is mentioned, Gamet Noach, Biavos, I forget the Noach, but 
But what is the what is the theme? What does it mean to God? What does it mean to say God remembers? One word, basically. You have the photostats. What do you mean you remember? What does that mean God remembers? God is God is judging. Judgment. The day of Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin. Yom Hadin is the day of judgment. You remember? And then the text, glorious text, tells us what it means that God is remembering. It means that God is judging. God is judging individuals and God is judging nations. Individuals and all individuals, all created beings, briot, and at the same time, God is judging the nations. God is judging Medinot. In fact, I'll tell you something interesting. That the word Medina itself, the word Medina, now with a state in Medina Israel, it appears in the Megillah many times. One is from uh, Genesis 22, and one is from uh, what I said about now, which is the Right. It's in the packet. It's, it's, right. right, it's in the packet. I'm sorry. It's in, it's, right, thank you. It's in the packet. So the word Medina, what appears in the Megillah many times, Megillah at the word Medina is related to the word Din. Right? Someone told me that in Arabic today, it's also that way. Medina is a, presumably a, a state. Presumably, is a place where one has uh, rules and laws. So the, the, in the Megillah, it's all about rules and laws. So the word Al Hamadinot Bo Yehameir Ezel Lacherev Ezel Rashalom Ezel Rasova Ezel Arab. We have it in the photos. Which states will war and peace and plenty and deprivation? That's a matter of judgment. So the the God of Rosh Hashanah that we encounter. In the central, the center, the central, there are three blessings. The central one is Zichronot. The encounter with God is that of God the judge. That's what kings do. When the people ask Samuel in the book of Shmuel for a king, they, they said for two reasons. He should judge us and fight our wars, lead us in battle. Those That in the book of Shmuel are the two roles of the king. So on Rosh Hashanah, the king is first and foremost a judge. The nature of this judgment we'll see shortly, and that's where Akedat Yitzchak appears, in that blessing. And then we have the third blessing, which we're not going to deal with this afternoon. What is the third blessing? It's called Shofarot. Shofar, the third blessing, is about Shofarot. What is the theme of that blessing? In one word. What is the theme of Shofarot? In a word. Not two words, one word. Yeah, what is it? I can't hear you. Revelation is correct. Revelation. Sinai is one instance of revelation. It's about revelation. In fact, the way it works in the, in the Shofarot is actually very interesting. There are three kinds of revelations. Past, present, and future. Now that's the... So the, the, it's, this is a king who, who, who interacts with the world. That's the point of Rosh Hashanah. The king of Rosh Hashanah is not a king, a transcendent king up in heaven only, but the king of Rosh Hashanah interacts with the world and probably related to the idea of, of, of creation. There's a, an act of creation and there's an ongoing creation. There's an ongoing concern. So there's revelation and judgment. Not, not in that order, judgment and revelation, that's what the king does. 
king interacts, and the king is primarily a judge. So we'll be focusing on the intermediate blessing, the central blessing of Zichronot. Now, there's another point before we get to the details of the prayer and also of the Akedah, and that is that there's something else interesting about the service of Rosh Hashanah. By the way, every single thing I'm saying should be said in your local synagogues. I mean, that's what, you know, people come to shul for Rosh Hashanah, they're there for six hours, and unfortunately, many of them walk out not actually understanding the structure of the service, which is unfortunate because the structure, it's not about the structure, but it does, it's very helpful to know sort of what's going on in, in terms of from a structural standpoint. It's a useful thing to do, and there's something else interesting about the Rosh Hashanah service, unique about the Rosh Hashanah service, and that is that, and this is discussed in the Gemara and the Sechad Rosh Hashanah, that the basic building blocks of the Rosh Hashanah service are verses from the uh, from from the Bible. The entire service, Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofar, which is the core service of Rosh Hashanah, even though the, especially the Ashkenazim and many poems are very beautiful, but they're not the core of the service. The core of the service is Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. And not only that, it's very interesting that in the Mishnah, the Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot are referred to not just as blessings, but as blessings on the shofar. You know, everybody knows that we make a blessing on the shofar. I think Rabbi Fox spoke about that with Shmoa Kol Shofar, Rabbi Yotamis with Koa Shofar. That doesn't appear in the, in the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't know from that blessing. That's why there's a debate what it is. It's not in the Gemara. The Gemara doesn't know from this blessing at all. From the Gemara, it appears there's no such blessing. The blessing on the Shofar in the Gemara is found in the Mishnah. It's, the, it's Malchiot, Zichronot, and Shofarot. The blessings in conjunction with the Shofar are the blessings of the service. So they, they function as the blessings on the shofar, but they themselves consist of a set of verses. Not only do they consist of a set of, of verses, but, but they have a very particular structure to them. And that is the following structure. Three verses from the, from the Torah. This is the minimum. This is Rabbi Akiva's opinion. We call Rabbi Akiva. Three verses from the Torah. Three verses from the writings, it's called Tivrei Kachicha, which, which essentially the Psalms, and three verses from the prophetic writings. And then a tenth verse from the Torah. Three, 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 and one. A minimum of ten verses, and in that order, three from the Torah, three from the Psalms, three from the prophets, and a tenth verse from the Torah. That's the view of Rabbi Akiva. There's a disagreement. So Yochanan ben Nuri says, that's not required. He only requires three verses altogether. One from the Torah, one from the Holy Writings, the Psalms, and one from the Prophets. Which opinion do we follow? We follow Rabbi Akiva, except, except for one interesting thing. Funny thing is, many years ago I, I made a suggestion in, in my complete ignorance. I didn't read it, I just said what I thought. And then I discovered afterwards that two very different people had made the same suggestion. One is El Bogan, who wrote the history of prayer, and the other was Rabbi Soloveitchik. You couldn't two, two people more different. But anyway, and something very interesting about this. 
which is that even though we follow the view of Rabbi Akiva, we have 10 verses. However, we have in our prayer service, at least when it comes to the blessings of Malchiot, God's kingship, we are including the Malchiot of Yochanan ben Nuri. We include the other Malchiot. We have two. We say the Malchiot of 10 verses, but we also say the Malchiot of three verses. Now, where do we say the Malchiot of three? It's a hypothesis. Where do we say the Malchiot of three verses? Do you know the, the Machzor? What do we say the Malchiot of three verses? So we say it, actually, in all the prayers of Rosh Hashanah, in the third blessing. Not in the fourth blessing, which is Malchiot, but the third blessing, which is about God's holiness, Amelech HaKadosh. In that blessing, we insert a very beautiful poem, which begins with the words, Yes, God, or we, we prophesy that God's, the fear of God will someday uh, be present in the entire world. We ask God's fear be the whole world. And we say, We ask, we have a prayer for the Jewish people. Then we have the third third paragraph. For the righteous, special prayer for the righteous. The evil should leave this world. And we ask for God's God should be king. And we quote a verse. What's the verse? Which is, of course, from the Psalms. And then the last paragraph, as it is written, right? As it is written, God is exalted in justice. God is sanctified with righteousness. Where's that verse from? Anybody know? It's from Isaiah. It's from Yeshayahu. So we have a verse from the Psalms, followed by a verse from, from the prophets. The only thing that's missing is a verse from the Torah. But it's actually very interesting that the section begins with the words, Uvachain. Very straight, Uvachain. Therefore, we put Uvachain. Uvachain. So therefore, we saw therefore. There's something coming before that's not there. We're missing something. What was there before? So I suggested, so I suggested that what was there before was a verse from the Torah. So Yochanan ben Nuri is Malchiyos, a verse from the Torah. So then I said, many, many years ago, I said, I wonder why it's missing, why they took it out. So someone in the audience made a good suggestion. So I'll tell you why it's missing. It's missing for the following reason. It's missing because the Gemara already has problems finding enough verses for Malchiyos. We only have three times in the Torah that we can find the verses from Malchiyot to the extent that the fourth verse from the Torah is what? What's the fourth verse of Malchiyot from the Torah? Yeah, let me make a suggestion. Everybody should go home before Rosh Hashanah and look at the Machzor. What is the fourth verse from Malchiyot? It's the verse everybody knows, by the way. This verse you all know. There's not a person in this room that doesn't know this verse. Not one person. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right? That's the fourth verse. But it doesn't say the word Melech. It's Kabbalat, Amalchut Shamayim, but it doesn't say, because we have no other verses. 
we have to conscript the beloved Shema to get the fourth verse. So if we included Yochanan ben Nuri's pasuk, we 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 actually be, be undercutting ourselves, we preempting it. So therefore, we took it out. It was basically for Rabbi Akiva, but we but Tain Pachto is so beautiful. How how can you not say it? Very beautiful. So that's that's the Malchus of Yochanan ben Nuri. Anyway, so this it's interesting that we have on Rosh Hashanah. It's very specific. It's essentially the currency of the prayer service is actually verses, biblical verses. Now, why is that so? We can hypothesize. Why is that the case? Why did they construct the service in this way? And my guess is the following, that since fundamentally Rosh Hashanah is about God's kingship, we are very reluctant to talk about God in general. Our tradition has grave misgivings about speaking about God. Actually, we have sort of conflict about it. On one hand, we don't want to. On the other hand, we do it all the time with our poems. So in talking about God, what the rabbinic tradition has handed us is a way to speak about God. The way we speak about God is by using God's language. And therefore, the entire service, because at the end of the day, it's about God's kingship. And so therefore, the text that we use on Rosh Hashanah, beginning with Malchiot, is of course God's word, which is Torah Nevi'im Ketuvim. To make the point more sharply, if we think about the structure of the Musaf service of Rosh Hashanah, and we think about Yom Kippur, what on Yom Kippur is parallel to Rosh Hashanah, it's exactly the same place. Right? Exactly the same place in the Machzor, on Yom Kippur, we say something different, something that's parallel. In each case, by the way, in Musaf, in the classical service, the Chazan asks permission to pray. Request in the middle of the service is the raven praying for two hours. So asking permission to pray. In the Ashkenazic rites, and even the Sfarim also have permission to pray. Typically, Ochigo Lakel. Ochigo Lakel is a very short prayer with a particular nusach to it. It's a nusach of a request. Ochigo Lakel. That's the request nusach. Appears also in Shachris. It's a rushus. And then the Chazan starts Malchiot Zichlonot Shofrot. On Yom Kippur, exactly in the same place, what, what's parallel on Yom Kippur? What do you say on Yom Kippur? In the place that you say Malchus, what, what is it? Well, I ask the Eskers later. It's the Avoda. Starts with the Avoda. The Avoda, the service of the high priest. That's the reenactment of the high priest service. It appears precisely in the place of Malchus. And if you open up, you want to look at the interesting, you want to study Goldschmidt. Daniel Goldschmidt, in his Machser, critical edition of the, of the Machser, he has several avodot. You see, the avodot, the earliest ones, which are ancient, are essentially the earliest ones. Who knows how old? Third, fourth century. They are essentially almost verbatim. The Mishnayot of Tractate Yoma. The, the avodot essentially is a recitation of even what we have. I mean, it's Koach or Atokonanta. They are the Mishnah. On Yom Kippur, you say the Mishnah. On Rosh Hashanah, you say you, you, it's, 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 it's Tanakh, actually Tachal, Torah Ketuvim Nevi'im. It's Tanakh, it's biblical verses on Rosh Hashanah. On Yom Kippur, it's the Mishnah. The point being very simple, Yom Kippur is not about God, essentially. God's a given. It's about us. Can we atone for our sins? Can we, can we reimagine ourselves? Can we go 
go back into our past, think about what we did wrong, can we correct it, take on all kinds of obligations. That's essentially Yom Kippur. It's the day of repentance. Slicha, Vidui. These are all Yom Kippur themes. They're absent on Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah is not about us. It's a day about God. It's about living in God's world. That's Rosh Hashanah. We are living in God's world. That has implications for us, no doubt. But it's not directly about us. So in the day of Rosh Hashanah, which is a day about a recognition that we live in God's world with implications because we're being judged. We begin to think about repentance, maybe, but it's not a day of repentance. So the text is God's, God's text. Yom Kippur, which is our day, there the text is actually our text. Our text is the Mishnah, our collected wisdom, our insights, etc. That's what we bring to Yom Kippur. So that's in terms of the structure of Rosh Hashanah. The Malchiot, Zichrot, and Shofrot, they are essentially biblical verses. They are biblical verses, not essentially, that's what they are. And that's the service. Three, 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 and one. Why is it three, 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 and one? Why isn't it four, three, and three? Why three, three, three from the Torah, three from the Psalms, and then a tenth verse from the Torah, yes? Well, 30, 30, 30, and 10 is one of the ways to divide, and that's true. That is true. There are many different ways to, if you have a hundred sounds, right, that is, that's, could be. That's that's one of the ways to, the, the Talmud, the, the Gemara speaks about 30 sounds. That's in the Gemara. 30 sounds of the Shofar. Anyway, nine, there will be nine sounds, which become 30. 30 become 40. 40 become 100. It goes on. That's that's the way the often things develop. And anyway, in any event, the reason is, is simple. It's not a, no Chachmas here. The reason is because the 10th verse is a different part of the service. The service consists, this, each section consists of two parts. The first part is some kind of statement about God. God is king. We quote different verses. The tenth verse, however, in the case of Shema, or the, tenth, the other cases even more so, are embedded in the last part of that section, which is a request. So Zichrono talks about God's remembering. We'll see what that means. But the, the end of the paragraph is, O God, remember us for good. In the middle of that request, is a verse. So the tenth verse is part two of the section. Part one is statements. Part two are requests. Bakashot, we ask God to remember us kindly, remember us for good, etc. And the biblical verse is found in that section. In short, the day of Rosh Hashanah, which is the day about God's kingship, uh, is a day in which we are using God's text. And it's a very highly structured service, extremely so. In terms of the number of verses, the kinds of verses, where they're found, etc. Anyway, this is the section we'll call Zikrono. Now, what is what I'd like to do now is to two things. First of all, to say something about Akedat Yitzchak. And secondly, to look at this section of our service and to see what, what they're trying to say to us, some of the things they're trying trying to say to us. I would say the following in terms of in terms of this, I think, is the central prayer of Rosh Hashanah, Zichronot. It ends with Akedat Yitzchak. It ends with our recalling the binding of Isaac. One might say that the hero of Rosh Hashanah, from this perspective, would be Abraham. Because Akedat Yitzchak is really not about Yitzchak. Akedat Yitzchak, Yitzchak is a prop in the story, essentially. Akedat Yitzchak is about Abraham. That's true when it comes to the liturgy. When it comes to the biblical readings, however, it's very interesting 
there the hero, or more properly heroine, is not Abraham. The heroes of, of the Torah readings are three. One is Sarah. One is Rachel. It's the Haftorah of the second day. And the other is Hannah. It's actually very striking that the heroes are, are the three women. The women, they take center stage on Rosh Hashanah. In terms of Hashem Pokaret Sarah, which is the basic Torah reading for Rosh Hashanah. Remember that Rosh Hashanah essentially is just one day. So it's one day. It's only two days because of Sveka Diyoma. We're not sure which is the right day, etc. But in the Talmud, Hashem Pokaret, God remembering Sarah, is the core reading. And then the Haftarah of the first day is Chana, the story of Chana. And then, of course, the second day we have the story of, of Rachel. They're very stirring and very powerful uh, Haftarot, as is the Torah reading. The Akedah, it's not clear whether when they had one day Rosh Hashanah, if they read the Akedah altogether. It's hard to know. When did they stop the reading? We know where they started. We don't know where they stopped. So it's very hard to know. But we, having two days, second day is Akedah Yitzchak. But in, this, in the text of the service, the Akedah is very central. If you recall the Akedah at the end of the section of Zichron Note. I would also add that Akedah Yitzchak has a connection. It's found in the liturgy in other places as well. And, of course, there's a connection to the shofar there, the rams, the ram, the aisle. But on top of that, at least in the Sephardic rite, not the Ashkenazic rite, but the Sephardic rite, if any Sephardic Jews here, the highlight of the Rosh Hashanah service for them is the poem that they read before they sound the shofar. Which is an awesome poem. And it has as its tagline, Anybody ever prayed in a Sephardic synagogue? That's the highlight of the service. It's a very powerful program. To lead into shofar, the one who bound, the one who is bound in the altar. In any event, okay. So let's now begin, in the little time that we have, to uh, look at. To look at. Let me say one thing about Akedat Yitzchak. If, uh, I think there are two questions. My experience has been that people who speak about the Akedah don't go to the two places I want to mention, two, two, two elements of the story that I think are very important. The first of which is bound up with this, essentially it's a poem, we call the section, the blessing we call Zichronot. It's written, written in a very glorious Hebrew. And this poem, which is ancient, is deeply connected to the following proposition. When we start, start say, studying the story, of, study the Torah, sometimes people start with the story of Abraham, which appears at the end of chapter 11 and proceeds in chapter 12. God says to Abraham, Lechucha. That's when people start, often in school, they start with the story of Abraham. Okay, that's a colossal error, and I'll tell you why. It actually makes no sense, and think about it. The fact of the matter is, the Torah does not begin with chapter 11. The Torah begins with chapter 1. The fact of the matter is that the patriarchal narratives, which begin with Abraham and Sarah and proceed through the rest of the book of Breshit, are a continuation of the beginning of the book. The book begins with creation. And one of the fundamental questions one must ask 
is what is the relationship between creation narratives on one hand and the story of the patriarchs on the other. The book consists of two things. There's the creation story and the patriarchal narrative. What is the connection between them? And here, without getting into all the depths of it, because that would take us a very long time, I want to make the following point about studying the story of Abraham. He's a hero this afternoon. He's the hero of Rosh Hashanah. The story of Abraham has to be read in two different ways. One is he's the first, he's the beginning, he's the Av, he's the father. Avram is the exalted father. One might say that the, the story begins with Abraham, that's true. The story of the patriarchal family, the covenantal family, begins with Abraham. That is true. What is equally true is that the Abraham story is a continuation, I would say even a culmination, a completion of what comes before. And what comes before is the story of creation. If we think about it, to map it out in a very simple way, I would say the following. If you open up the Chumash, you see that the Torah begins with two different creation stories. First is chapter 1, and the next one is chapters 2 and 3. Whether the two contradict each other, whether they can live kind of peaceful coexistence with each other, what's their relationship is a very good question. They're certainly different, that's for sure. And one of the core differences between the two of them, the core difference actually, is this. The first story of creation is about God creating everything. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. It's about heaven and earth and everything in between. So that's what's described in chapter 1, this, this ordered creation of everything. That's chapter 1. That's creation story number one. But in creation story number two, it's not about God who creates everything. It's not about everything. It's very specific. In creation story number two, it's about a particular place. Garden of Eden. Gan Eden Mikedem. In which God places God's beloved creation, which is the human being. That's what that story is about. It's about many other things as well. But at its core, it's about, I guess, what we would call sacred space and the ability or inability for the human to, to, to occupy that space together with God. It ends with the inability, actually, of the human to live in that space together with God. The human being is banished from that space. Shortly thereafter, there's a flood which undoes creation. And then, what happens after the flood? So in the book of Genesis, two things have to happen after the flood. First of all, the world has to be recreated. One might say Genesis chapter 1 has to reappear. Genesis chapter 1 is creation of heaven and earth. The human being has been endowed in, in, with God's spirit, Salam Elohim, etc. That's the first thing. And the one who accomplishes that in the Torah, who recreates the world, the agent of recreation, goes back into the world, who is told that the human being is still endowed with God's Salem, is of course Noah. Noah goes back into the world, he's given all the commands of be fruitful and multiply and inhabit the earth and subdue the earth. And he's also given some rules, some laws. Whoever sheds the blood of a human by the human shall blood be shed. Why? Keep it Salem Elohim Adam, for the human being is endowed with God's spirit. The expression Selim Elohim is found at the end of chapter 1. So Noah essentially redoes 
the creation, first creation narrative. But what he doesn't do is redo the second creation narrative. Noah does not connect to, discover, recover, or occupy sacred space. That's left up to the next character of the Torah, which is Abraham, and in two different ways. The first is the first command to Abraham of Lechucha, which is chapter 12. Go to the place that I will show you, right? And in which I will appear to you. God appears to Abraham in chapter 12. I believe it's verse 7. That's the first time. That's the first Lechucha. And even more so in the second Lechucha, the second time he has the command of Lechucha. I believe it's the only two times in the Bible that that expression appears, Lechucha. And the second time is chapter 22. That's once again a command to go to the place that I will tell you. First is the place that I will show you. And the second command, the place to which he is directed, is Haramoriyah, the place of the altar, the sacred space. The holy space within the holy space. That's what Abraham, so Abraham essentially has discovered or recovered or uncovered one might say the alternative, the alternative space, it's not the Garden of Eden to which you can never go back, it's the alternative to the Garden of Eden. You can't go back to Eden for a simple reason that Eden's not a place of people that have knowledge. It's only a place of people that don't have knowledge. Once you have knowledge, you can't go back there. But you can discover an, an alternative sacred space. In short, that Second story, which is Akedat Yitzchak, is, one might say, the culmination of the creation narrative. The creation narratives, because it's not, it is about the two creations, but those two are then undone. And then we need to, to, to do them over in a different way, to redo them. So the one who does, redoes the first piece of it, Creation narrative number one, that's Noah. But the one who does creation narrative number two, and in two different ways, is Abraham. Abraham, as in effect, one might say, discovered the alternative to the Garden of Eden. Now, if we had more time, I would demonstrate how the text makes this crystal clear to us. It's actually obvious if you think of it. I mean, it's not obvious until you, until you see it. But once you see it, it becomes very obvious. And among other things, it's very interesting that in the first, in the banishment from Eden, why is the human being banished from Eden in the first place? What is the reason for the expulsion from Eden? God actually says why. At the end of chapter 3, God said to God, or to God's retinue, God said, Behold, the human being has become like one of us to know good and evil. End of chapter 3 of Genesis. And now, maybe the human being, extend one's hand. It doesn't mean to extend your hand. In biblical Hebrew, does not mean to extend your hand. It means to harm. Maybe the human being will extend the human's hand and take from the tree of life and live forever. So what is God's concern then? God's concern is that uh, the human being may become just like God. After all, the human already has knowledge. 
all that's left is uh, to live forever, to be immortal. If you have knowledge and you live forever, says God, it's just like us. So that we don't want the human to be like us, says God. We don't want the human to be divine. And therefore, what did God do? Pen yishlach yado. adam. God banished the human. Vayishalcheyu. God sent the human away. Because pen yishlach yado. Vayishalcheyu. The truth of the matter is, the one who had warned us about this, about what God's concern really was, was none other than the main character of the Garden of Eden. That makes the story very interesting. Called the snake. It's exactly what the snake said. That's not the reason. God doesn't want you to be God. And the snake never always tells the truth. The biggest liars always tell the truth, by the way. They never lie. They always tell the so the snake told the truth. It's, it's right. That is the reason. Okay. That's that's the cause of the banishment from Eden. The the one might say the, the the recovery of the of the alternate Eden, which is the story of the binding of Isaac. What is the moment in the text that we know that Abraham will in fact secure that place? The moment we know that he will not have to sacrifice Isaac, because if he sacrifices Isaac, then he gives up his future. That's what the story is about. Forget about killing Isaac. Then he he renders himself. He enters into into oblivion. He's already sent away Ishmael, so he's not around. The future depends. Avram, great father, depends on some kind of successor. He's unhappy with all the other choices. Not Eliezer of Damascus, not Lot. There's only Isaac. And the angel calls down to Abraham from heaven. What does the angel say? The text connects us to the first story. Do not sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham then understands, but you told me before to sacrifice Isaac. How can we reconcile the contradiction in God's command? Abraham intuits at that moment that there's a way to reconcile God's contradiction. That on one hand, Isaac is to be sacrificed, and on the other hand, Isaac is not to be sacrificed. Abraham's understanding, his resolution of the contradiction, is there must be something that simultaneously is Isaac and is also not Isaac. And what is simultaneously Isaac and not Isaac? The answer is sacrifice. That's the idea of sacrifice. The sacrifice is me. By the same token, it's not me. And Abraham picks up his eyes and sees the text we have is Achar behind him. How can you see behind you? You can see behind you if you know it has to be there. He intuits at that moment what God is actually saying. It doesn't have to be told. It doesn't need a Shulchan Aruch at that moment because he understands. He's in sync. And when you're in sync with somebody, they don't have to tell you anything. Because you, because you know what they want if you're really in sync. And Abraham is at that moment in sync. He's, he's arrived at a place of true autonomy, but autonomy which is a function of a deep understanding. That's how he reconciles the contradiction. He understands the meaning of and that's the moment that the covenant is affirmed. And the covenant is affirmed means, what does it mean to be covenantal? What does it mean to be covenantal in the, in the Torah? What does it mean? Stuff is so basic, by the way. It means to be immortal. That's what it means. It's an, it, it, it's an immortal relationship. It expand, extends beyond himself. And what is the moment that Abraham actually achieves a measure of, 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 of immortality? 
That's what the Torah wrestles with. How do you achieve? What is the first step towards achieving immortality? That's right. When, it, when he's ready to give up his future. It only happens in the Torah when you, when you embrace your own mortality. When you embrace it fully, which is what he does. If he sacrifices Isaac, he becomes very mortal. He's consigned to true oblivion because there's no future. He has to embrace that. He has to accept it. And the moment you accept it, it leaves open the possibility of covenant. And covenant means an ongoing relationship. That's the point at its core of the Akedah. That, and that, in that deep sense, actually, there's a relationship between the binding of Isaac and the story of the Garden of Eden. If you, if you, if you want to be divine, you're expelled from the Garden. You can't enter into a relationship, because it's not a relationship of, of, of actually of, of, of equals. Because if there's any one truth, one core teaching of the Torah is, is this disjunction between the human being and God. Human being is not God. No human being is God. Moses isn't God either. He was 120 years, which is the, the number of years the human lives in Genesis, 120. He's a great human, but that means he's not God. If he's a great human, it means he's, he, he has failings, because human beings have failings. The greatest with his failings. You have to embrace that. If you embrace it, then you can be covenantal. But that's the core text that lies behind the davening of Rosh Hashanah, certainly the intermediate blessing. That's the first point. And failure to read, let me what the methodological failure is, not naming names. I have to name names because I've never seen a single person actually who understood this properly. If you don't read the Abraham story properly, that is, you have to read it two ways. I, I often tell the following story. Many years ago, some people in this room don't know this. We had a thing we called records. You put it on a, you had to put it on a, one of these record record players, turned exactly, and it was the records. You heard music. Now it's back in vinyl is in apparently now. But anyway, in those days, so I had a very dear friend of mine, still is, knew I loved classical music, and he sent me one of Mozart's uh, piano concertos, number 24, a great piece, Clifford Curzon, a great recording. Anyway. So I had this, I was very grateful. So these have, at the back of the record, they have these jackets. You can read about the piece. So, unbelievable. So I read, so it said the following thing about Mozart. It said that Mozart actually made many innovations on the music of, uh, on, the, on the Baroque music, especially of Bach. And I read this, I said, what? I grew up in a house that we lived with classical music. Mozart was the who came, who, who, who came before Beethoven. That's how I grew up as a kid. There's Beethoven, we love Beethoven. Before there was Mozart. And now I read this jacket that said that Mozart is playing out of Bach. So I played the music. And you know what? I heard Bach. I actually heard Bach. I had never heard this before. This was a deep insight for me. And why do I mention this? You read the Abraham narrative. We are reading it as Abraham. He's before Isaac. He's before Jacob. That's the Mozart before Beethoven. right? But there's another way to read it. There are ten generations from Adam to Noah, and there are ten generations from Noah to Abraham. He's not the beginning, he's the end. And the one who understood this in the deepest way was the anonymous author, it's called Tiyata de Beirav, of, this, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the liturgy of Rosh Hashanah. This is an ancient text. Tiyata de Beirav, it's identified with the house of Rav, first generation Amora, 
who writes the liturgy for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a day of creation. Ayom harat olam. And in this central text, there are three characters who step onto the stage. The third of whom is Abraham. The second of whom is Noah. Noah actually appears in the, in the service. And the first is Adam. Now let's take a look at this. That's, that, anyway, that's one point about the Akedah. Now I'll get to a second point about the, if we have time, a second point about the Akedah, uh, uh, if we have time later on. I'm not sure we'll get there. In any event, let's first look at, because this is, we are saying this on Rosh Hashanah. Let's look at the Zichronot. Okay, let's very carefully, we'll read through this. I have a lot of questions. Okay? Let's we'll learn this together. This is on page 158, and you all have it in the packets. If you don't have one, share it. Very important to see the text. Begins at Tazocher Maseolam, who fokeid ko Yitzurei Gedder. You remember this translation. Maseolam, they translated what was wrought from eternity. Who fokeid, they translate, are mindful of Yitzurei Kedem, formed for, things formed me Kedem from old. First of all, actually interesting. I'll ask you a question. By the way, in terms of the verses, the Gemara says that when you talk about remembering, you have to use the, all the verses that are cited. We haven't up to not to the verses yet, but first is a statement. And in the verses, you have to have the word remember in the verse. In the section of remembrances, the word remember. So the Gemara asks the following question: What is which word is means remember? So, so the word zocher, whose car is to remember. What about the word pokate? What about the word lifkod? So that also means remember. So the Gemara actually says that it's also good. Lifkod is also okay. But the text that we have, we don't, we don't use the word lifkod. We only use the word zocher in the, in the, in the verses. We don't use lifkod. But what is the difference, actually? I'll ask a different one. What is the difference between lifkod and lifkod? The two different words. Now, when I say the difference, I'm not asking for the dictionary definition. I'm saying how they function in the, in the biblical text. How does the score function in the Bible for the most part, maybe always, and with code? With code is a very interesting word. Okay. God also does something with score. By Yiskaro, he met at Rachel, by Yiftach et Rachma. When it comes to Rachel, it says that God remembered. When it comes to Sarah, Vashem Pokadet Sarah Kasher Amar, it's the Torah reading for the first day of Rosh Hashanah. But it strikes me that with, yes? That's possible. I'm not sure that's true in every case. But there the word Yiskar is also used. There actually, it would be a contradictory point that there um, it uses the word Yiskar in the end of chapter 2 of Exodus. Yes? Okay, that's similar. That's a similar point that was mentioned before. You mentioned that point. I'm saying that I don't think that's always the case. Yes. Yeah. 
remembering something that I said to do, but I'm, I'm not focused on it. I'm not sure that's accurate. I don't know. I have to check that out. It's interesting. My gut tells me that's not the case. Yeah. So that with code has more to do with paying very careful attention, not just remembering, but very careful attention exactly what I have to do. I mean, we said the following. The word with code has many meanings. With code has a range of meanings. It can mean to count. It means to count. It can mean to remember. It can mean something else, which is to, to uh, judge, actually. In other words, after the golden calf story, Moses prays for the people. God says to Moshe, listen, you guide the people. When I am okay them, right, I will, I will, I will recall their sin. That has the point over there is I will, I will, I will punish them. I would say that take, take the count. It can mean to, uh, to remember or to recount in English. Or take take into account to take into account those three in English the three ter three words are actually related and they're related in Hebrew. Pokeh has a side to it of, 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 of a strict side to it a side of judgment a side of punishment. I wonder when Joseph said to his brothers, Elohim at the end of Genesis, God will someday etchem. Whether he wasn't actually hinting at not just the, the redemption, but what it takes to get there. What it takes to get there is not so simple. So the word poke carries with it a sense of not just remembering, taking into account, but a sense of, of judgment. And I wonder about this text, which is an ancient text we have before us, and very beautiful. The Hebrew is glorious. Atazo it's interesting that the second half of that verse is, refers to humanity as Yitzure Kedem. Yitzure Kedem is interesting. The word Kedem, of course, is a term that first appears in the Bible in relationship to the Garden of Eden. And the second half is Vayasem Sham Et Adam Asheyatzar. In chapter 1 of Genesis, we don't have the word Yatsar. Only in chapter 2, in chapter 3. Yitzar is to form. In fact, the God of the second creation narrative is represented much more as one who actually does something. Who's Yotzer, who forms, who shapes. The God of chapter 1 is Bore, is Oseh, but is not a Yotzer. I wonder here if right away in this first line there isn't already a hint and what is to come next? God is pokeed called Yitzure Kedem. Yitzurim, that's the second story. That's the Garden of Eden. That's about sin and punishment. This is how, the, this, is how this section begins. It begins with judgment, but it recalls for us in the very beginning the first judgment. The first judgment. The first judgment, of course, is the story of Adam. Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden. That's how we begin. You remember, Zohar is a kinder and gentler term in the Torah. God is remembering Rachel. Right? God is hearing Rachel. It doesn't say Rachel cried out to God, but God is hearing it. God is remembering. The God of this beginning of this paragraph is a God who is pokeed. You have it in the Torah. Pokeed avon avot abanim. Who visits the sins of the parents upon the children. That's the word pokeed. 
that's okay. Now it may have a, a positive side to it. That is a kind of a, of a distributive idea. That instead of punishing one person and wiping them out, you distribute the punishment over generations. Perhaps it has a kinder side to it. That's that, that's what Moses prays for in the sin of the spies. Don't don't kill them right now. You know, let's let's share the suffering. This way we can we can move forward. Okay, but it has with it okay it has a side of, of, of punishment to it. Before you are revealed all of the hidden things, and the, and the multitude of hidden things from the beginning of time. Here too, perhaps, there's a kind of hint at what, what's to follow. Because what, where do we find, where do we, where do we first encounter the idea of things hidden from God, or the attempt to hide from God? That's the uh, hiding, right? The hiding, the hiding. The human, the sinful human, is hiding from God. Perhaps the hiding itself is the sin, as the hiding who we really are. In certain circles, that the hiding is a, is a, is a, is a grave sin. I'll tell you in which circles the hiding is a grave sin. We have a lot to learn from these people. These are uh, recovering addicts. For them, the hiding. The first step is to be honest with you. Have to be honest who you are. The hiding is the sin, because if you're hiding, you never go anywhere. The only way is brutal honesty. There's no other way. That's the first thing Adam did. That, from that perspective, the hiding itself is problematic. God is walking in the garden, and one might even get it walking in the garden, maybe even searching for looking where 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 are my beloved creatures? God can't find the creatures. Where are you? Where are you? You know, Ayeka. Get a sense of a God who's searching for them, and they're hiding. They're hiding from God. So here you have. The, the God, the, the God who is judging Yitzure Kedem, the God who sees that which is hidden, Nistarot and Tawumot, and Nothing is forgotten before your throne. Perhaps the throne being the Kisei, being a place of, of, of judgment. Nistar, nothing is hidden from your eyes. And we continue with the same theme of the all-knowing God. You know all that which has transpired. You, you, you know the deeds. You know what people have done. And the beings themselves cannot hide from you. Everything, everything is known. God who looks into the future, to the end of time. It's very beautiful. Let me ask you a question. What is the point of the God who sees into the future? What is this text saying to us? God is looking and sees all the future generations. How do you understand this? And it was saying this every Rosh Hashanah, two days Rosh Hashanah. What's your understanding? With summoning up the God who sees everything in the future. How, what, what is the... Chok zikaron, u'hipokei ko ruach banafesh. 
Anybody have any thoughts about that? Yeah. And what is the what is the, the I understand that God has a different perspective because God sees the big picture, we don't. And and how do you see the and what is the relationship between the theme of what we're saying and that and that idea? What is it what, how do you connect those two? Okay, so what you're suggesting then, let I me mean, if I understood you correctly, what you're suggesting is that this idea of, in other words, that, that the purpose of God's judgment then, if I understood you correctly, if I don't correct me, the purpose of God's judgment is in a way uh, kind of therapeutic, from the, not from the standpoint of the one being judged per se, but the lessons that are, the idea of judgment as a kind of instrument of teaching and to and to and to move us towards a better place. The idea of judgment is not just to exact vengeance or whatever, not just punishment, but there's a positive side to judgment in that, in, from God's perspective, this is part of a process. The process ends up in a very different place. That's possible. Is that what you were suggesting? Okay, yeah. Which reduces you to um, do you have free will to do anything? Give up the I don't, because if he sees to the, God sees to the end of all generations, and, and is irrelevant to me, to his end, good or I'm going to be bad. No, not necessarily. I don't think that the question of free will has to come in over here. Given the fact that people behave in a certain way, God is responding to that. In other words, the point being that the punishment... Uh, or the consequence of our behavior is God is, is there to affect uh, or to punish or to judge because from God's perspective even, even, even a negative act has potentially a, a very good end. I mean the fact of the matter is and this is important to remember people don't learn from their successes. This is my experience. To the extent people learn anything, it's from consequences of what we made a mistake and we suffered for it in some way. And if we're lucky, then we're able to, to learn from that and hopefully don't repeat the same mistake. Given the fact that people behave in a certain way, then that God's involvement in the world as judge perhaps can be seen as God has a plan in mind. Okay, it's negative, but maybe we can use this to eventually arrive at a good end. It may take... 10 generations, it may take 20 generations, but from God's perspective, it, it, every mistake, right, can be positive. The one, who, the, one, the, the one who's very popular nowadays, I mean, I love him myself, somebody said once, everybody should have two Rebbe's, your own Rebbe, and then there's also Rav, uh, Rav uh, Nachman. Rav Nachman, Moadim Lusimcha, Rabbi Fruman from Tekoa was very, Moadim means our festivals, also means to fall down. Moadim Muslim Chai would say, you're falling down is good because that's how you learn. 
every falling down has potentially the opportunity, if we see it that way, to, to, to move us into to be, to be stronger in the future. So that's only one way to read it. That's not the way, let's say, there's another way to read this, which is the way I used to read it. I like this very much. Yeah, what is the other way? Because I know from reading Horatius that even after God so lovingly and exactly created the world, in chapter you know, in chapter nine it's gone. So it's not even early, it's gone in chapter six. I can't get so, so basically that so that's am I supposed to take optimism back that, that, that the rabbis are saying right here in Zephon that not only have Koba away and Yadula, but that he's going to seek into the future. So I'm asking, is that an optimistic thing? Because part would make a covenant to have an ongoing relationship with something that isn't ongoing. Right, I don't think that I would, I, your optimism is good. I don't think that, I don't think that this text per se, we're up to the covenant yet. The covenant's got, covenant is the main theme of the blessing. But I don't think we've quite yet arrived. Maybe there's a hint at it, but I don't think we've arrived there quite yet. I think that there is another way to read this, which is the way I used to read it. I like this better, actually, but the way I used to read it is, and Rabbi Soloveitchik suggested, that it means something else, which is that God sees the future. In other words, when you do something wrong, it has it has consequences. Let's say you malign somebody. Oh, I feel bad about it. You know, I didn't. Whatever. I shouldn't have done it. Okay, well, that person's reputation has been damaged. Well, you can't take it back. You know what I mean? It's like when they write about Israel, they, they condemn Israel on page one, they retract on page 37, you know what I mean? Okay, but, but, but you can't take it back. The fact of the matter is that uh, that's, Rabbi Salvation once said, why on Yom Kippur do we say, we say Yisker? Saying Yisker on Yom Kippur, prayer for the dead. In the classic sources, Kaper Yamcha Asher Padita, God forgive the people you have redeemed. Kaper Yamcha, those who live. Asher Padita, those who have died. Why did the dead require atonement? The dead, they're not doing anything wrong. That's not true. They're not doing anything wrong today. But when they're alive, they did many things. Those things live beyond us. They continue. The what we do has consequences. So therefore, in talking about God's judgment, since God is seeing every person, God is also seeing the future. God understands. We don't. But God understands that when you did X, do you know how many, you know how many lives you've changed when you did X? On the other side, you can know how much good you can do in this world. If you do something good, continues to do good. But from the standpoint of judgment, that's the way he always understood it. So Fel Marbita Sofko Adorot is part of the indictment. We think we're just doing this today. Okay, tomorrow morning, new day. Not the case. Because it has deep consequences for all generations for the future. That's his understanding. It's part of the judgment. Anyway, now we come to the next line. May Rashid Data. You made this this point, right? You you told us this from the very beginning, Mereshit. From time immemorial, you made this known. This day is the first day, a memorial of the first day. Kichok Yisrael who 
Mishpat Elohei Yaakov, a statute for Israel and an ordinance of the God of Jacob. That's a very critical line in the service, and it's a line that is not intuitively obvious as to what that means. You made this known from the beginning of time. The reason it's not intuitively obvious is it's based upon a midrash, and the author of this poem didn't bother to tell you what midrash, so I'll tell you the midrash. The midrash is this. The midrash is, this appears not only here, it appears elsewhere in the service also. The midrash is, let me first say the following. The Talmud says that the world was created, not on Rosh Hashanah, the world is created on the 25th day of the month of Elul. That's what the Talmud says. The sixth day is Rosh Hashanah. In, the, in Midrashic tradition, Rosh Hashanah is not the first day of creation, it's the sixth, which is the day the human is created. The human being is created on Rosh Hashanah. This poem assumes that. It assumes the second point, that the human being is sinning on the day the human is, 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 is created. Not the two years later. On that day, the human is sinning. And the third point it assumes is, on the day the human is sinning, the human is judged. Therefore, the day of creation, which is the first day of, which is Rosh Hashanah, the first day of Tishrei, is the day of judgment. It's the day of sin and the day of judgment. That's exactly what it says in our service here. This day, the beginning of Masech, referred to the human being. This is a remembrance of that first day of judgment. And we, Israel, willingly enter into judgment. We are reenacting the first day of creation. That's, what, that's how we begin in this section. We are reenacting the first day of creation. And then we continue. And that first day of creation, which is the day that Adam was set judged and found guilty, together with Eve and whatever. That was a judgment of Adam, but who was Adam, actually? Adam. Adam has two different meanings. Adam is a person. Adam is also humanity. There is only one Adam at the time. There's Adam and his wife. So that day, the day of sentencing, where Adam is sentenced, who is sentenced? The person is sentenced, but also humanity is sentenced. So therefore the poem continues, and concerning nations, Medinot, the word din, it can be said, to whom will there be war and where will there be peace? Right? Where will there be abundance, plenty? Where there will be famine? That's, that's, the, that's collective groups, nations. But also individual created beings are yipokedu are remembered in judgment. For life or death. Who is not taken account of on this day? For the remembrance, we're now back to Yitzur again, of the ones you formed come before you. The deeds of a person, and the person's obligations, job, responsibilities, and the actions of the person, right? The steps of the person. The thoughts and the machinations 
and the impulses. What, the word awesome is an overused word, but this is what it says. And the poetry is so beautiful. In short, we are all doomed because there's all, stand before a judge who knows everything, all our rationalizations, our impulses, knows us better than we know ourselves. It's part of the idea of prayer. We stand before one who knows us better than we know ourselves. You know? What does it mean? What does it mean, Masayish Ufukudato? Masayish Ufukudato. Here we have a theme of Rav Kook, which is deep in Hasidut, actually. Rabbi Salvechik also picked this up to some degree. But in, Has in Hasidic thinking, it's one of the core ideas. Masayish Ufukudato, a person's deeds and a person's pikuda. Pikuda is an obligation or a task. That in this world, we have responsibilities. Then there's also, everybody has their own task. Everybody has something that they're good at. They were born to do so-and-so. Everybody's different. And then the question becomes, forget about everything else, am I doing the thing that I should be doing? Am I exercising my abilities in the way that, in the way that is a service to the world? an obligation to the divine, the service, that's Pekudato. That's what God knows. God knows every person can do something. Everybody's in a different place. In short, the judgment is an all-encompassing judgment. And we stand before the one who understands it all. The impulses, the rationalizations, the actions, nothing is hidden and nothing is forgotten. And the person who represents this on Rosh Hashanah is none other than Adam. After all, it's remembrance of the first day. We are remembering our common ancestor. We all have the same ancestor, the first human being, Adam. This was the day of his judgment. His sin, his day of creation, is the day of, is the day of. Sin is the day of judgment. In this text, the text is not uh, Pollyannish about human beings. The human being is sinning on the first day. That's so the question now becomes, as we study this, what hope is there, actually? How do we escape the judgment on Rosh Hashanah? And here we come to a very important line, one of the turning points in this service. Happy is the one who doesn't forget. Happy is the person who doesn't forget God. Happy is the person who strengthens oneself in God. Sometimes you look around and you find no support from other human beings, from community, from friends, family. Sometimes you strengthen yourself in God. You remind yourself what your mission is. Kidor Shechra, those that seek you will not stumble. Here we come to a very important word, one of my favorite words, the word Drisha actually is a Kidor Shechra. This is one of the turning points of the service. Doshecha Loikoshego. What does who are Doshecha? What does it mean to be Doresh? What does it mean with Drosh? 
Midrash has two meanings in Biblical Hebrew. The poem picks up on both meanings. One is the word Midrash, Trishavachakira. It means to study something very intensively and very deeply and very carefully. The judge has the obligation in a serious matter to look into it very carefully. Midrash v'lachkar. Trishavachakira. That's one meaning of Lidrosh, to study something. But the word Lidrosh has actually another meaning, and that is to search. Livakesh. Lidrosh and Livakesh are two terms that are similar, not identical, but similar. Happy are those that are Doresh. Happy are those who seek out God. Fortunate, not happy. Fortunate is the one who seeks out God. Doreshecha. Because if you seek out God and don't forget God, then the poem says, Ki God remembers all the actions. But, God is a doresh. And suddenly, it takes on a different meaning. It's not about a judge who simply sits there like a computer, counting out the pluses and the minuses. It's this kind of divine scorekeeper. But, there's almost a human side to this. There's a... So God is seeking them out. Not everybody is the same. Those who seek out God are sought out by God. What is the example of somebody who is seeking out God and God seeks this person out? That's the next line. You remembered Noah in love, with love. So it's not the objective. The key word is Bi'ava. Because Noah was a righteous person. And therefore... God doesn't respond to the Noahs of the world the way God would respond to somebody else. Batifkideyu was interesting over here. Could be remember, could be redeem. God didn't just remember Noah, right? God saved Noah with, with words of redemption and mercy inasmuch as God brought the flood upon the whole world to destroy them because of their evil deeds. However, in the two lines later, the memory of Noah came before you. So onto the stage of Rosh Hashanah, a very unlikely person. We started with Adam, and now we move to Noah. Noah is the second step of creation. Noah is part of the creation narrative. Noah is the recreation of the world. And now, with this statement of Noah, and the idea that there are some people that God treats differently, those that don't forget. Those that don't forget God, God doesn't forget them. God treats them differently. There's a law, but it's tempered by, by Ava, by love. And now, now we begin the section, of course, after this preamble, now we begin the verses. And there are going to be ten verses. Ten verses. The first three are from the Torah. So it's got to be a verse in which the word memory is found. That's the point. There are rules over here. You've got to play by the rules. You can't just read any old verse. There's got to be the word by Yiskar, which there is. And in this verse, the first verse is referring to Noah. We have to remember something about the verses, an important point, just to be realistic about it. There are not an infinite number of verses. There are certain rules. That the, the, the author is limited by the rules of the Talmud. You have, to, you have to have the word to remember. But the first of them is Noah. 
God remembers Noah and the animals that are with him, and God caused a, a uh, wind to pass over the earth, by Yashoku HaMayim, and the, the, the waters were stilled. So this is the recreation. The, the first, in the first creation in Genesis, it begins with this verse that God, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, right? And the earth was, was a void. The Ruach, either the wind or the Spirit of God, hovered above the waters. Spirit of God probably refers, in Biblical Hebrew, often refers to God's wisdom. Ruach Elohim is often the wisdom of God. So God created the world in wisdom. And the recreation of the world, the undoing of the world as the waters exceed the boundaries. And now, the beginning of the second creation is the waters are stilled by Yashoku Hamayim. Once again, we have Ruach Elohim. By Aver Elohim Ruach Haaretz, by Yashoku Hamayim. That's the first verse. And now we have more verses. So the next verse, on the next page, 159, and it says the following. And now we move to two more verses. By That's from Exodus. God is remembering, God is hearing the cries of Israel in Egypt. And God remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the third verse is I will remember my covenant with Jacob and Isaac and Abraham. I will remember the land. These two verses, the second and third verses from the Torah, of course the word remember is there, but also is the word covenant. Here we have the idea of the covenant. And it's interesting that in verse 2 and verse 3, they are referring to a situation in which the Torah speaks of a people, a community, who it would appear in and of themselves are incapable of being redeemed. It's a very important point. God is hearing the cries of Israel in Egypt, and God remembers the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is to say, that in and of themselves, that God may feel sorry for them, God would not be moved to redeem them. God only redeems them because of the cries that God is sensitive to, but also because of promises that God has made. The covenant is invoked typically in situations, and certainly in the third verse, which is taken from the book of Vayikra, from the admonition in Vayikra, where it says, I will send them out of the land, fail to observe the sabbatical years, they will confess their sins, they'll pay back the years that they worked the land, they shouldn't have worked the land, and the Torah repeats there, I will take them back, I will remember my covenant, which suggests to us that in and of themselves, they're unworthy of redemption, but that God is redeeming them because of promises God has made, covenantal promises. And this actually is a very important point. This, of course, becomes the key theme now in the rest of the blessing. And I think the point from the standpoint of the structure of the service is this that there are three themes in this section. Theme number one is judgment. That's the primary theme. Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment. But then you can escape judgment, some people can escape judgment, if you are a, a, a seeker of God, if you don't forget God. The example being, first example being Noah. And that, that's great if you're a seeker of God. But for the rest of us who are not, the question is, how do we achieve redemption? How do we escape the judgment of Rosh Hashanah? 
if we're not seekers of God, if we're not in the words of the Torah, as Noah was, Ish Tzadik and Tamim, a perfect and whole and pure and righteous person. For those who are less than perfect, how do we, how do we uh, have a successful escape from the judgment, from the all-knowing judge? So here, the critical theme is that of covenant. That's the theme that appears here in the verses, and this is the theme that the text runs with, and that's the theme that, of course, is the last Torah verse on the bottom of page 159, and that's the theme that is actually the, the, the blessing. Blessed are you, O God, who remembers the covenant. That's the blessing of, of the Zichronot section. So the covenant over here, of course, is the focus when it comes to covenant, God remembering the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God remembers the covenant of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. And later we'll come back again, of course, in a couple of minutes, to the binding of Isaac, which is, of course, the culmination of this, of this blessing. But before we get to the binding of Isaac, let me just go through a couple of other points in this blessing about the other verses. Now, the next section... Some of you, I must confess, I don't understand. And uh, I actually did a little research on this. My gut tells me there's a mistake here. But since every text I found says the same thing, I'm very hesitant to say that. The second section, of course, we finished with the three biblical Torah verses. Now we come to the three verses from the Psalms. Tivrei Kotshecha, they call the holy words. It says the following. Zecher Asal Niflotav. Chanun v'rachum Hashem v'nemar, terech natan v'reyav, yizkar v'yolam v'rito. So the two, we took, quote two verses over here. It says the following, God has made a memorial for God's wondrous works. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. And it says, God gave meat to them that fear him. God will be mindful of the covenant. So that's a, those two verses are from the Psalms. I don't have the uh, citation here. I think it's either 110 or 1... Let me just see. It might be... Page 159 on the next verses, which is about seven or eight lines from the top of the page. Right? Everybody sees that? Eight lines down. Yeah, Psalm 111, actually. Psalm 111. Page 1555 in this translation. Psalm 111. It begins, Hallelujah. This is a small psalm, Psalm 111. It's a very nice tune to it also. Good tune. In any event, if you look at the psalm, you'll see straight out, it's a psalm which is in alphabetical order. It's like an, it's an alphabet psalm. Psalm 111. What is particularly strange, that's why I suggest something's not right here, but I would put my question out there. Zecher asal anifuyotav, chanun v'rachum Hashem, is verse number four of Psalm 111. Okay? Verse number five, Teref Notan, is the next verse. Zayin chet tet yud. What is very strange is, first of all, that only one of the two verses has the word Zecher in it. This counts for two verses. It'd be three verses. This counts for two. But only one of them has the word Zecher. And not only that, 
the word zecher doesn't actually mean, it would appear, that memory. It's not that God is remembering. Zecher asal v'niflotav, right? Here they translate, God has one renown for God's wonders, which is pretty correct. I mean, zecher, it's very odd. I mean, so I would have, I mean, what, I, what, I'm, what I'm hesitant to say is that initially this is counts as, as, one, as one verse, we're short a verse. So I was trying to find today in the Sephardic Machzorim if they have a different set of verses. But I couldn't find it. I, I, I have to do some more research on that. Now the verse does have the word Zecher, and it does have the word Brit. But the counting it is two verses, which I think is very strange. Two consecutive verses. The third verse is also from the Psalms. And the third verse is, Vayiskol ahem Brito, Vayinachem kerov chasadol, God remembered the covenant, and God relented uh, according to God's mercies, the multitude of God's mercies. These are three verses that speak of God's relenting of something. And certainly the sense of them is that both of the verses talk about covenant. So once again, the verses from the writings, the Psalms, speak about God's covenant. And the covenant here has to do not so much with, with uh, the... Uh, promise that God made about Israel's redemption, but certainly the first verse, Teref Natan Li Re'av, talks about the God who sustains and feeds the world. God's covenant with the world is much more in line with what God said to Noah. I'm going to sustain the world, not destroy the world. So the covenant here, at least in these, in these verses, at least in the first two verses, suggest God's ongoing concern with the world, God's involvement in the world in a, in a positive sense. That's, those are the verses from the Psalms. And now the last section, before we get to the request, is our three verses from, from the prophetic writings. The prophetic writings in general talk about the future. And they are typically words of great consolation. And here we have three very interesting verses. The first verse is, Haloch b'karata leymar, from Yirmiyahu. Say the, God says to Yirmiyahu, say the following, I remember the kindnesses of your youth. The love of your espousals, they translate. That's the first verse. How you followed me into a land that was not sown. You followed me into a desert. Now we have the second verse. I will remember my covenant I made with you in the days of your youth. I will establish for you a covenant forever. The first two verses are speaking of a God who remembers what was a covenant. It's a relationship. But sometimes, sometimes you meet somebody or you, sometimes you... Sometimes you are close to somebody for many years, things don't work out, personal and business, whatever it is. But in assessing the person, you can't forget the past. That's, that's the point over here. God is saying, I re God, we ask God to remember us not the way we are today. We ask God to remember us the way we used to be. We may know riot. Remember when we were young, idealistic, remember we did these crazy things. Remember you followed me into a desert. Remember the kind of faith you had in me. 
It's very powerful. That's the God is remembering the way things once.